Meet Jerry Landers, just an average guy, married, father of two. Every day, he drives his late model car to Food World, where he is assistant manager, in line for a promotion. Bright, personable, competent, Jerry Landers has every reason to believe he's a young man with a future. And he is, but it isn't at Food World. <laughs> Read this. God grants you an interview. It's a gag. Pretty crazy gag. Not, uh, not what you expected, huh? Jumpers. Warner Brothers presents John Denver and George Burns in Oh God I thought you didn't believe in me uh, th th That's just an expression I'm more than that I want you to spread the word That I am I exist And you think it's God Well he thinks he's God And I'm in no position to argue with him I'm not a nut The ball is rolling right over me. Now watch over you. Oh, no. Jerry, are you seeing now that you saw God? Three times. Three times. I can't make appearances all over. Don't you understand? No, I People don't. People would be dropping dead from hysterics. Can you sign this, please? What if it were you? What if you were given a chance, Jerry, to meet and speak up here with God? Let's go for a ride. What would it take to convince you it wasn't a joke? Change the weather. A little rain? Yeah, a, a small shower. One small shower, you got it. It's not raining outside. It's just in here. This is fantastic. Thank you. Here it is, as seen through the eyes of Jerry Landers, God. What would be the reaction of your friends and family? You're gonna get kind of rusty. We get the papers, a little TV. I'm, I'm liable to lose my job. Now, I am not crazy. Well, God may have been interested in talking to you as an assistant manager. Now, we'll just see how he feels about you as a bag stuffer. And I don't need some child psychiatrist to tell me that I didn't talk to God because I did. Lose a job, save a world. And of all the people in the world, why would uh, he... I am not crazy. ...pick you? To try a little harder to get the word out? Well, I... Uh... Uh, yeah, yeah, I'll, I'll give him another shot. That's my boy. Oh, God. A funny, feel-good sort of movie about a mixed blessing. Hey everybody, it's another episode of uh, 70 Movies We Saw in the 70s, at least that's what we're calling it still for now. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, I'm Ben Reiser, I'm here with Scott Lucas. Scott, say hi. Hi, I'm Scott Lucas, I'm here with Ben Reiser. Ben, say hi. 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 I'm Ben Reiser, I am not in Local H. Um, Scott is. I am. <laughs> He's a lifer, I tell you. That's what uh, that's that's what I call myself. I was gonna. But you are yes, a, a, yes. a guru of some sorts for uh, Madison, Wisconsin, aren't you? I am. I, I yes, I am the guru of Madison, Wisconsin. That's it. That's all. And you want anything done in Madison, Wisconsin? Come see me. 
Although I was trying to clear off space on my iPhone, whatever the fuck number I have now, which I got like the biggest one I could get and discovered that I was like, I had like two megabytes of memory left and it was starting to tell me like, Hey, you need to delete some shit. But I think I'm a hoarder. At least I definitely am a digital hoarder. (laughs) I've got a pile of um, external hard drives that like could go from floor to ceiling. I don't know what's on any of them, but um, it doesn't take long for those things to pile up. It's true. It's true. Because every time they make bigger external drives, then they also make uh, video formats that take up more space on those drives so like i got eight terabytes of space but then like i shoot a 10 minute movie in 4k and it's five terabytes the right. i don't know uh i was Sounds like you're ready for an upgrade i am always always ready for an upgrade but anyway so so i was <laughs> i was looking through it's the iphone suggested all these things i might want to either store in some cloud that i don't pay for uh, and don't want to pay for it or just delete off the phone. And so I was like, okay, show me what these videos, apparently I have some videos. And like one of the, one of the biggest videos was like, oh wait, this is fucking local H. It's like some audience shot of me. I, I'm not even sure what venue it was, but, uh, uh you were doing some stuff. So that had to go. The cats. It had to go. And had to, I had figure to I think it's 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 old enough that I think I've transferred it over to one of those hard drives that's going floor to ceiling. So it's somewhere. It's still no sizes. one is ever going to watch video that they shoot at shows. It's just, they're, they're, no one's going to watch it, and you're not going to watch it. And uh, yeah, and it's always the same songs, so they're they're already on YouTube anyway. You are a thousand percent right. It doesn't seem to convince me to delete the shit though. But I did. I did delete that. I was like, I'm talking to this guy now. I don't need his my fucking audience <laughs> shots of, <laughs> on stage. I was thinking about, you know, I, something. I, I I remembered something this week, which is that I have this. Mike made me set up this uh, Patreon account for both of our podcasts. You know what this is? Patreon? This bullshit? I don't know what it is. I've seen it, and it's it's not like the tequila, right? I don't know what that is. Oh, you mean... <laughs> <laughs> no, it's not like the, it's not Patron, yeah, but it, I wish it was. <laughs> but it's not even like Cameo, which I sort of understand now. You uh, should have a Cameo, wouldn't you? Wouldn't, don't you think people would pay you like twenty five bucks to get you to record a message for the? Oh, family? that. Yeah, yeah. I'm I'm not there yet. I can't. You got a? Didn't you? Somebody sent you like a Gilbert Gottfried one, right? Yeah, that was pretty good. Yeah, that was funny. That um, was that was quite a thrill hearing your. Uh, name and your band's name uttered by that guy yeah well that's like a six degrees of separation thing because mike mcpadden was worked on that on the gilbert Gottfried podcast he was their social media guy oh really uh yeah um and uh gilbert's co-host on that show frank santo padre was a guest uh not on 70 movies but on mike's other podcast crackpot cinema where they talked about that may west movie which is which sextet one? sextet you ever see that? Ringo Starr, Alice Cooper, Mae West? I haven't seen that, but uh, they're showing a lot of Mae West movies on Criterion lately. And I've oh, well, this is May, this is Mae West much in the later. 70s. Yeah, yeah. This so this would be around, uh, oh, what's the Truman Capote movie that she's in? Oh, yeah. Is it Myra Breckenridge or Myra That's it. Magazine? That's it. That's it. 
I was gonna. So anyway, so I realized we had this Patreon thing, which is this. I, I, I need. I, I really. What I really need to do is get in there and cancel it because it's this thing where people can pay money, uh, and get. I don't know what stuff from you. So like the podcast is set up with this Patreon account. And I think we have like maybe 10 people that are paying like five bucks a month. And supposedly they get bonus extras. Um, but I never figured out what those bonus extras are supposed to be. It's sort of like we put up our show notes and then sometimes like I would take little audio clips that didn't make it into the final shows. Right. And give them that bonus content. Yeah, you were saying you were saying that you were going to put like bonus content from the last show on there, and I didn't really know what the fuck you were talking about. Right. Well, I didn't either. But here's the thing: what I was what I was talking about was like, oh, okay, because even though, and I'm I'm proud to say (laughs) in a really stupid fucking way that hey, the second episode we did was two minutes shorter than the first episode, so it was shorter than that first episode. But now, unbelievable. But. I cut out at least 40 minutes worth of shit from that second episode, including like a really kind of, I thought, great thing we had where we were talking about um, matting issues in movie theaters now. And then then also a whole section towards the end where we were talking about, I guess, a bunch of other Philip Kaufman movies. And I thought, oh, I'll more than that, like, because I, you know, not to reveal every secret of the podcast, although why not? Oh, I record the we record this thing separately on fancy audio recording software like uh, GarageBand on Audacity, so that we sound as crisp and and brilliant as we can. And yeah. then, but I also yeah. record this thing on Zoom, which has kind of shitty audio, but also captures video. And so, I, what I really thought was like, oh, I'll put little video segments that are only available to those Patreon subscribers. But then I realized, and this is where I was trying to get to, I was going to paint a picture of what it looks like when we do this podcast and up until this week uh the two other shows we did scott and and it warms my heart that he made this huge effort like he he tried to think what's the best sounding uh spot in my apartment and what's the one where you won't hear the l train go by uh, every 10 minutes as it does and so he was in his bathroom and basically in the on the bathroom floor uh, and he had like a uh, uh, like a, uh, a quilt or something hung over the shower curtain, but my but my vision of Scott is Scott on the bathroom floor, and then half of the frame is the toilet. So it's like toilet bowl and Scott. And I was like, I don't know. Does Scott want me to put video clips up on Patreon where it's well, Scott well, on the bathroom? Here's floor? the thing about this episode: I'm still in a toilet. I'm not in the same toilet, <laughs> okay. but I am in a different toilet, <laughs> and it's it, it's it's the master bedroom. And uh, there's a there's a quilt right here in front of me in front of this shower. Uh, but it was getting hot in that other because it's really like like a little cubicle uh it's almost like a sound booth so it was perfect but it was also hot and so i'm trying it in the other bathroom today and uh here goes the train can you hear that no okay see so on the other hand though when i'm mixing these episodes i hear a whole bunch of stuff that i don't hear when we're talking live so sorry Anyway, so that's that. So I don't know. I, I'll either shut off Patreon or put some of that stuff up, and you can see Scott in his many bathrooms, and you can be like, "Wow, that guy's got like some serious digs over in Chicago or wherever you are." Um, uh, gotta have two bathrooms. You gotta have two bathrooms. Uh, and then I also then the other thing that happened was uh, 
Uh, we got. I've been really busy this last week, last two weeks, and I think Scott has been too. I hope so. A little bit. Yeah. But we did get into a little scuffle uh, on Facebook uh, about the dead zone, which right. Scott watched again and is still not a fan, or is even less of a fan than he was. Well, you know, the thing about it is I've seen it more times than most people who are fans. So I've oh, seen stop. that movie. That's I've seen that movie a lot. I've, I, and okay. it, it was uh, really cold and gray. And I was like, you know what? I'm going to watch The Dead Zone. And so it happened to be showing. And and I have like this little movie screen because I'm not going to the movies. So I pull down the movie screen and I have a projector. And I put a, a chair right in front of the screen. So it's like I'm in the front row. And it's kind of fun. It kind of gets the job done. But uh, so I did that and just kind of watched the the sunset and get even grayer and darker. And uh, and then I let loose on it a little bit. Yeah. And I I wasn't surprised when you came back at me. Yeah. But, you know, I think I was uh, I was a little bit under the influence when I did. And I. Uh, good you know I, yeah it was i was i wasn't even i wasn't reading what you were writing all that clearly and i'm like what well, fuck you this is emotional and, and you're like i never said anything about it being sentimental and whatever anyway uh but it did start to get me thinking of my of my checkered past with other uh musicians and rock dignitaries that i've encountered in the past and i i almost always seem to make a bad impression although it's been no, a long time since i've tried uh not at all but 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 I'm gonna briefly recount my other uh, encounters with. Well, first of all, there was me working for Freddy Johnston, and I don't. And as I've talked about that the last couple times, I don't think I've said how much I felt like Freddy did not appreciate me as a person, and certainly not as a quote unquote tour manager because I had never done it before, and right, I didn't know how to tune guitars or set up drums or any of that stuff, or, or be tough at the end of the night and get money from a club owner who didn't want to give yeah. it to us. So I was no good. And then I got us lost again, as we were talking last time, it was pre GPS and well, it was the end of the tour and we were heading back to New Jersey and I got on the wrong highway and delayed us by like an hour or something. So it ended badly for me and Freddie. And I've seen him a couple times over the years since, and it's always been like, eh. <laughs> And then, like, a, wow. then a couple years after I worked for him, I made a lot of money with this stupid song that I wrote that wound up on the President's United States of America first album. Mm-hmm. And I bumped into him in an airport one time, and he had heard that story, and it was sort of right after it happened. He's like, "I heard you made like uh, all this money." I was like, "Yeah." He's like, hmm. "And he like really seemed like annoyed because it was before bad reputation, so he hadn't made his." His right. Money. He hadn't made his money yet. And I, and so there was this brief period of time where I had accidentally made more money as a songwriter than I think Freedy had. And it was not. Well, I mean, you still it. probably did, didn't you? I mean, that song probably <laughs> made more money than. I have to believe he made more money on Bad Reputation uh, than than I did. Possibly. Uh, but maybe, maybe not. Maybe. I don't think you that know, record I don't sold as much as that president's record. No, but I think he must have. He he got more airplay money. I'm sure that adds up. I think. Yeah. I, I mean, know. I don't know. It'd be interesting it, to find out. Well, it you is should true. Ask him. <laughs> you should ask him. <laughs> but it him. is. But, it, you know, just but for, I did discover. Just to bed. But I did. I did discover that. Like that's the secret. That's the one way that I discovered you can kind of make money in the music industry is if you write a song, but you're not in the band, 
And right. so you've got nothing to do with paying back every last penny that these fuckers spend on you for videos and promotion and all that shit. Like, it just knocks me out every time I think about it. At least, I don't know how things, there is no record industry really anymore, but the way it used to work, just be like, I'd be like, wow, what a fucking scam this whole thing is. Well, it's always been songwriting. You know, you're, I don't mm-hmm. know many people who have ever made their uh, money back from record sales. You know, right. it's just not, it's not set up that way. So right. that's the only way to do it is from songwriting, as far as I know. But I mean, I would think after a million or two, you know, you got to recoup somewhere down the line. Maybe not. That, no, and I, no, I, I'm sure they did. But but the, but the thing with me as a songwriter, you're right. Like I started recouping from record one. Like I didn't owe anybody any right. money. Like my song yeah. was on this thing. So every time they sold a dumb album, I got five cents. And so they sold right. three million but albums. So, I'm like, but yeah. so did they on the songwriting bit, unless they sold their songwriting to the label. Mm. They're still recouping on songwriting. It's just that mm. they're never going to recoup on record sales. Okay. Well, so, you know, you're them. right, but they were also making money as well. Oh, good. Good for them. God bless. Yeah. Oh, that's another, that's another rock star uh, that, that I rubbed the wrong way because, uh, <laughs> well, that's all. You know what? We have enough to talk about today. I won't go into the, we'll talk about President of the United States some other time. Okay. Joe Jackson. I went to, I went to a record signing when I was a kid. Joe Jackson was was signing records at at some, I want to say, I don't remember what store it was, but it was like downtown, uh, like near Battery Park. Hmm? Tower. No, I'll get to my Tower record story. Oh. But Joe Jackson, and I think I brought like his first four or five, I think he was, I think he was touring and he was, he just put out that um, Night and Day with that Stepping Out song on it. Right. So I brought like the first three Joe Jackson albums and then night and day for him to sign. And then he got really pissed off because I handed him that stack and he's like, where's Jumping Jive? Because that was like the missing album after like his third album and before night Uh and day. And I was just like, oh, I think I stupid. And I was like 15 probably. And I thought, oh, that one doesn't count. He was like, really? He was (laughs) fucking like, yeah. (laughs) um, uh, Then... The replacements, uh, I was lucky enough, and here's here's the life of privilege I've lived. Uh, I went, I think I was like I was just about to go to college, and my grandparents took me and my cousin to Europe uh, for a little vacation, which I had never Ooh. been, never been, and it was uh-huh. kind of weird to do it with my grandparents. But I was like eighteen, and we went to um, Amsterdam and Copenhagen. And uh, then London. And when we got to London, I found out that the replacements who were touring uh, for uh, Please to Meet Me were playing at the Mean Fiddler. You ever play there? No. I don't even know if it's a venue anymore. In Copenhagen? No, no, this was in outside of London. Okay. The Mean Fiddler, no. You've played, you've, but I mean, you've toured the UK, yeah. right? We, yeah. yeah, we always play at the, one of the, the O2s. The Academy and stuff like that. Right. So I uh, saw them play a great show and actually gave them like a demo tape for my band. I think I gave it to Tommy. I don't know. He didn't care. Uh, it was a great show, but it was like, but he's the one, like, if you're going to give it to someone that he's the one to give it to. Yes. Yeah. So then, uh, then it was like a year later or it was maybe six months later. I was back in New York and they were, I think they toured Europe first for that album. And then they came back and they were playing 
and they were going to be playing the Ritz in in New York. I think they were playing the Ritz one night, and then the next night they were going to be playing at the Beacon. And I had tickets to both shows, but they were also doing a record signing at Tower Records. And so I went up, and I don't know what I had for them to sign. I gave it to Paul to sign. I think it was like a 7-inch or a 12-inch or something. And I said something about like, hey, are you going to play? I don't know what I said. I said something about like that I had tickets for the show that night and I hope they were going to play longer than they, had, than, than they had played at the Mean Fiddler in the UK because that show was only like an hour. And, you know, I'd seen them a bunch of times and I just think it was like a curfew thing. But he looked at me and he said, what do you want, blood? And I was <laughs> like, but the best part of that record signing thing was that Tommy Stinson, they were all drunk. And this was like four o'clock in the afternoon. I think they had like champagne at the table while they were signing their stuff. But Tommy got up and was wandering the racks of Tower Records and he was just signing random albums. He was like signing Bob Dylan CDs. Yeah. Um, that people would then later on discover and be like, whoa, what the fuck is this? Right. Bob Mould, I saw at a club once and again had like either like a 45 of mine or something. And I. I don't even know why I had it there. It wasn't it wasn't a Husker Juice show or anything like that. He just we both happened to be seeing the same, and I gave it to him, and he like. Anyway, the Cohen Brothers—they're not rock stars, but I saw them. I went to see. You got into uh, it with the Cohen Brothers. Cohen Brothers was a bet. Was really was was awkward. Uh, <laughs> it was. Uh, this ought to be good. <laughs> it was opening night. I actually saw the Cohen Brothers twice. What tour? <laughs> Yeah. Um, uh, Opening night of Blood Simple Uh uh, in New York, which I don't even know why I was there because I didn't know them from a hole in the wall. I think I had, but I had read, I had read a New York Times piece about it, I guess. Like it had been previewed the day before. And then I guess maybe it had their picture and I showed up at this thing and they were there and I think I said hi, whatever. But then for Raising Arizona, by then I was a huge fan and I was totally into that movie that they wrote, Crime Wave, mm-hmm. which didn't really get released. And I had always right. heard that they disowned. Yeah. But it was opening night of Raising Arizona in Manhattan. And uh, again, I bumped into them outside the theater. And me and my friend ran over and were like, oh, my God, come friends, we love you. And, and, and I said, um, and I said, we really love Crime Wave. And I'm not sure why you don't, you know. I don't know why you guys feel the way you feel about it, but it, I think it's really great. And they're like, we love Prime Wave. What's the matter with you? <laughs> I'm just always saying stupid fucking shit I never should say. Because so who I'm hated Crime Wave? So why huh? did it? Like, why could you only get Crime Wave on bootlegs? Who hated it? What was going on? No, I think they hated it. Oh yeah, but but I I, I honestly, as writers of a movie, I don't think you have any to say in whether you hate it or not. I think it does I don't think that they are the ones who prevented it from being released. I just think everyone hated it. The Sam Raimi thing, maybe. Yeah. Maybe I, I I just I I don't know, I I mean, I haven't watched Crime Wave in a while, but if I saw it now, I could, I'd probably be surprised at how <laughs> I probably would understand. Like, oh, now I understand why this movie right, right, released. Right. What about you? You ever encounter uh, your heroes and make a fool of yourself? Uh, yeah, constantly. Um, but with Tommy Stinson, the first time I met him, we were playing this show in L.A. and I can't remember the club. But after the shows, I would just walk around and, and sell the CDs. And it's like, hey, come come get me if you want a CD. I've got one, blah, blah, blah. So I'm walking around. This guy comes up to me. He's like, how much for the CDs? And I kind of look at him and I'm thinking, 
I know who this guy is. And I said, 10 bucks? He goes, okay. <laughs> gave me 10 bucks and I gave him the CD. And I'm looking at the 10 and then this guy who's the, the tour manager of one of the other bands, he comes up and goes, hey, do you know who that was? I'm like, yeah, I think I do. He goes, that was Tommy Stinson. You just sold CD to Tommy Stinson. It's like, ah, oh, fuck. <laughs> so years later, I gave him the 10 back. But, but yeah, just. <laughs> well, that's great. That's very nice that you gave him the 10, buy, the 10 back. Yeah, he deserved it. Yeah. I love Tommy Stinson. I get into fights with a friend of mine, though, who thinks that Tommy Stinson is rock and roll and that he much prefers Tommy Stinson. He thinks that Tommy Stinson is the heart and soul of the replacements and, and, and a better songwriter and a better front man than Paul Westerberg, which I'm just like, I don't, I don't think you're living in the same universe as me. I, yeah. I don't have anything I mean, bad to say about Tommy, but. Yeah. No, I, you know, you know, those kind of guys. You, you know where they're coming from. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Like the guys who think the Dead Zone is one of the good Cronenberg movies. Like me. It's the worst Cronenberg movie. <laughs> and, you know, that's not to say that I don't enjoy it. Uh, well, I, I've never made it through. Plus, I've spent all weekend saying, the ice <laughs> is going to break. <laughs> that's your thing. Oh. Speaking of last time, I don't have a lot of, I don't have any sort of follow up to say, oh, this is what we got wrong. Cause I, I just, I've been too busy to think about it, but, the, but what I have been doing, it. yeah, we nailed it. Right. But one thing that I have been doing while I've been doing lots of other work is revisiting a bunch of local H stuff that I haven't listened to in forever. Uh, and then uh, I, when I was, I was listening to whatever happened to PJ souls and the album starts with uh, what sounds like those. Sonogram ventilator noises from um, oh, Invasion yeah. of the Body Snatchers. Yeah. What are, what are those? What do you got going there? That is just a feedback loop of screening that we took from a song later. So it's it's sort of uh, much like in, they do in yes. uh, Invasion <laughs> of the Body Snatchers. It's sort of an audio sort of... You're foreshadowing. Yeah, an audio foreshadowing, right. Well, yeah. it doesn't sound like screams. It must just be the very end of the... It is a scream. The, the the second to last song is a song called uh, 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 <laughs> That's What They All Say. And it just ends with this endless feedback loop of a wow, 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 wow. So when you, when you start it and put it out of context, it kind of sounds pretty much like that. Yeah, that, that, that sound, that sonogram sound. Yeah. Um, okay, we're talking about Oh God this week, which was uh, you, your idea, which was a great idea. And uh, <laughs> unleashed so much fucking shit for me to watch and think about. But what? But but one of the things I want to talk about, and you're going to tell me the story of because uh, you said you had a good story about seeing it as a kid. Right, right. Uh, I saw this movie in a church. Uh, I saw it in a, a Methodist church that was right a couple blocks from where I lived. It was right around the corner from where I went to school, and uh, and they were showing it. And I think this was something that was happening a lot uh, at the time, especially with this movie. Um, and and I think it was like a 16 millimeter print. I remember at one point they had to change the reel, so that's why I think it's got to be 16 millimeter. Yeah. And um, but yeah, I mean, this is a thing that would happen. I mean, I saw this, and I sent you something about this Japanese movie. Yes, you did. Yeah. Called <laughs> well, the, you just sent me the link, and I'm like, okay, I don't know what the fuck this is. It was called the Shiokari Pass, and it's this Japanese movie from 1977 that was also 
known as Love Stopped the Runaway Train. Because at the end, this guy, it's a runaway train, and he jumps off, and his body stops the train, so he sacrifices himself for all these people. Oh, wow. Then after these movies, you'd have these conversations about, you know, what was, oh, God trying to say to the, you know, the modern Christian, and, you know, and, and with the Shiokari Pass, it was like... Did he commit suicide or was he just, should he go to hell for that? You know, there's all these theological questions that these movies were supposed to bring up. And uh, I, I would imagine that still happens or they ran out of theater. Um, but I think that was part of the marketing campaign of Oh God was to show it in churches and, and to bring it to Christians and stuff like that. Well, what year do you think that was? Um, it was, it could have been 77. I mean, this came out in 77, right? Yeah. So it could have been 78. Um, it's funny because the Shiokiro Pass was released in 77 as well. So it had to be around the same time. Um, I think the one church, the church that I went to, which was a Baptist church, they probably heard this other church was showing, oh God. And they're like, well, fuck, we got to get a movie. And this is the one that they could get. Which has stuck with me. Yeah, I mean, I, I watched yeah. some of it, but the ending of the, the way they, they, they shoot, the way the guy jumps off the train. I mean, I didn't even know what was happening when I saw it. Uh, it does this thing where the director cuts and then it, it flash, his life flashes back before his eyes, but only two points in his life. So it was really well done, um, but it kind of messed with my head. Wow. So yeah, th- th- I think this was a thing that, they were doing you know but and but so so the the oh god showing at the methodist church that wasn't your church how did you wind up at that screening uh, a friend of mine uh they all knew i like movies everybody knew i like movies and so uh, uh, they had asked my parents if they could take me to see that movie there it was their church they lived right down the street from it i think i don't think my parents were there but but yeah, you know, everyone was just kind of sitting in in pews watching the Oh God. And people just, you know, they loved it. They thought it was hilarious. Uh, which we can get into whether or not it actually is hilarious. <laughs> I've got one. I'll just jump to this right now because I do think that there's some, that there's funny stuff. I think it's fine. I know I loved it as a kid and um I w- watching it this last week, I wasn't embarrassed. I wasn't like, oh, what was I thinking? Right. I mean, it's fascinating. You know, George Burns was ubiquitous in the 70s in, in movies. And th- this movie, it, okay, it makes sense, I guess. But, you know, he's also in Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club band. And he's, right. and he's singing, you know, fixing a hole. <laughs> and he's in yeah. movies with... He's like, Mr. Kite. Yes, he's Mr. Kite, and he's and he's uh, he's in movies with Brooke Shields, and it's just like going you know, in style. But he is and going in style, yeah. Um, and it he he is one of those guys that like you know was in the air uh, as soon as I knew that there was anything in the air. Like there was like George Burns was just like a thing. Like that as a six and seven and eight year old was like I knew. I was like, oh yeah, George Burns, right? And, <laughs> and so was John Denver, too. and so was John Denver. You know. Right. And and so this was the first thing that I thought of, especially when I started watching the movie again. But even before I did, um, 
okay, it's going to be a long winding circuitous path to, to this thing. But, but I'm interested and always have been interested in the sort of stigma that gets attached to, um, people who are artists in one medium, like rock stars or singers or whatever, and then try their hand at something else. And I always got this sense that it was, you know, that by and large, it was an awkward transition and, and that the viewing public or the listening public wasn't always comfortable and usually wasn't comfortable with people making that switch. Right. And, and when I started, when I went to college and I went to, to school to learn filmmaking and thought I would be a filmmaker and at the same time discover, and I'd always been a huge music fan and listener, but discovered uh, and or thought, oh, I can do this too, and started writing songs and and got a band together. I really, I I I remember grappling with this issue. Like, well, I have to pick one of these because as soon as as soon as I become famous at either being a rock star or a filmmaker, the other avenue is going to be closed to me because no one's gonna. Because I know how I felt. Like I, like that. Like I know. I remember think. I remember hearing about. Um, Ray Davies trying to, uh, and I think he did make a movie, like yeah, Waterloo Sunset or something. I mean, I remember him being an absolute beginner, but, <laughs> but I, don't I know think about he Water, wrote Waterloo. and directed or was going to make a movie out of one of those Kinks like concept albums, right? Um, and I was like, that's never gonna fly. Like, I don't want to see that. He's a rock star. He's not a filmmaker. And but so I really wanted to ask you because I because. You know, you you are to me a rock star and and an amazing singer and mm-hmm. and and more than that, even a songwriter like who's written you know albums and albums worth of great songs. But I've also and I and I and I reread this thing that you wrote. Oh, thank read, you. Uh, well, you're welcome. But uh, <laughs> the, this 25 years of Local H, which I think is one of the best sort of summations of your career up until that point i mean that any right. and then any rocker or anybody else has ever written about their own music or their own art like i think it's a you know that should you should expand that and, and turn it into an actual book but um i just think you're it turns out that you're a great writer period not just a songwriter so i'm wondering and and i know that you've been this film fan forever was there a point where you were contemplating your options and thinking maybe i want to write movies or or novels or something else well i i i can't tell you that the best way to circumvent this entire uh problem that you have with it is just to become a hip-hop artist or a rapper because <laughs> yeah i i can't think of a single one who hasn't gone into the movies you know uh but well what do you mean it's not like kanye uh isn't he I mean, but but again, no one's taking that. I'm not taking him seriously as a filmmaker, although well, I, I think I, he's I done think some it, great music videos. And I don't and I and I don't really know the answer to this question. That's how lame of a fan I am. I don't know. Well, he's got no problem being on reality TV shows, which is which is yeah, worse. Yeah, yeah. But that's a know? whole. But that's not what I'm talking about. But I mean, you but, watch something like Belly. I mean, I, I mean, I can't think of any anybody who has had this problem like 50 cent you know no one has this problem like oh you know i, I shouldn't do movies because they're like yeah i, I want to do movies it almost seems like being a hip-hop 
recording artists is something that they do so they can be in movies. I mean, yeah, it's but okay, almost but that's a, Elvis-like. That, that's a slightly different thing than what I'm talking about with you right now. Right, because being right, a right. movie star... And I would argue that fifty. That the, I would argue that we're, we'll go through a list, maybe of of all these musicians or singers who have tried their hand at acting. And I think it's the exception to the rule that anyone makes it past their first one or two movies without people getting sick of them or them just saying "fuck it, I'm not doing this anymore." Uh, I think, that by and large, people are like one and done. And, and even the people who have tried, like even David Bowie, who seems like more of a consummate, like all around artist, like was right. as good. Or almost as good as his at his visual representations and his music videos and all that shit as he was as a songwriter, and as a singer and as a, a as a musician. But if David Bowie had only ever done Man Who Fell to Earth, would anybody care like about anything he did after that in the movies? Like, yeah, Labyrinth is fun, but I don't give a fuck. Like, if that right. movie never happened, I don't care. It's not like he ever really became like a full time actor that anybody was excited to see their next movie. No, I mean the closest I can think of is is I mean I would rate Chris Christopherson much higher as far as a a yes. guy who could headline a movie. I mean right. I, I can't really think of yeah. Well, Barbara Streisand, yeah, had made the transition, right? <laughs> <laughs> but sure I get, did. but I guess I guess I'm reading in your face what I would feel comfortable saying if she'd never made a movie after what's up doc i don't think i'd care either like if, if she never directed a movie i don't care but no i i've got no problem i think people I mean, do respect her oh absolutely and she des- deserves respect but i don't think she's a rock singer in any way like i don't she's no. a she's a performer and she's you know like what she does goes hand in hand with everything but she was in the public consciousness as a as a singer as a diva as like a pop goddess like yeah so she does stuff like odali and i mean you know Mm -hmm. that perfect right right i mean i think that the reason is probably laziness and you know like when you're a rock musician you write your own lines and you you know you make up your own blocking and all that kind of stuff oh yeah you're in control of a lot or you should be but uh you know having to learn somebody else's lines, go where the camera is, do all that kind of stuff. That seems like a pain in the ass. And I think it probably happens where they're like, all right, you know, Bob Dylan does that and goes, ah, I don't really want to do that again. Yeah. Maybe Although he seems like maybe somebody who hasn't given up, given up on, on that idea. But, but he's, he, you know, he, he's done things where he writes the script. Or, right. you know, he's being interviewed by Martin Scorsese about a yeah. concert tour he did. He's not he's not being Billy the Kid anymore. No. And but but you're right. But you're right in that in 1988, when I graduated from college, I made a definite decision. I was like, I'm sick of movies. And I know that making a movie means I'm going to be involved in telling a single story for the next three or four years. It's going to take me a year to, like, write a screenplay and raise the money to shoot this screenplay. You know, it it was this long elaborate process. I didn't have the discipline for it. I didn't have the time or the patience or the energy to sell myself, to sell this blueprint for something that nobody would see for four years and to convince people that this screenplay blueprint was something worth investing in. Like I couldn't deal with any of that. Whereas I could write a song in 10 minutes and be on stage 10 minutes after that, singing it and playing it and I'd be done. Yeah. 
and it didn't cost me any money really yeah it's mind-blowing how long people spend on stuff you know i I mean and most people are working concurrently on stuff so it's not like they're not putting movies out while they're developing something but when you really get down to it you're like wow how could you have that much focus yeah but i'm asking you because you haven't answered this question did you consider writing did you consider a career as a as a filmmaker no 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 uh-uh i don't think so and you've never and in in all these years since you've never thought like oh maybe i should write no maybe it's i should just write write a novel or write a screenplay or? it seems all that stuff seems really really hard i don't want to do that <laughs> you know it's like writing like is a pain in the ass i mean that is tough and having to tell a story i I don't know how to do that i I honestly don't uh i know how to write a song um and maybe i mean that's good enough reason to do it i guess but uh, i don't know that just seems like too tough never thought about it no but as a cinephile how 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 much control have you sought over your music videos? Um, the first couple of videos we did, I was pretty unhappy with. Uh, and then we started working with uh, this guy from Minneapolis, Phil Harder. And he was always really open to stuff. And he would always let me get in the Scorsese shot or the Alfred Hitchcock shot into those things, you know, and he would, he would indulge me more than anything. I mean, but, but I liked what he was doing and he had a sense of humor about it. I mean, that to me was more important than, is that the guy, is that the guy who did the Eddie Vedder video? Yes. He did the Eddie Vedder video. That's the one that I never saw until recently, until like this past year. Like it seems like everything's back has gone up on YouTube in recent months. Maybe. But that was the first one we did with him, and that one was close enough to what my sensibilities would be if I were doing that kind of stuff. And he let me, he put in a a vertigo shot for me in the middle of it. You know, he did all those things that I I really enjoyed, and and he did a couple of other things. I think it's a fantastic video. I can't believe I never saw it before this past year, but... I've watched it like three or four times. I'm just like, this is so good. There's so many great shots in this things. There's shots in that video that I've n- never seen anywhere else. There's that shot where uh, Joe and the drums sort of yeah. like, rises above, and it's just like, whoa, that is a fucking great. Well, that effect. that was something where we were shooting that, and Joe started to get bummed out throughout the <laughs> shot because the camera was following me, and I was like, well, you know, I'm singing the vocals. And he's like, yeah, well, what, why is this all about you? And, you know, this isn't right. And I was kind of like, all right, he's right, you know. And so I was talking to Phil, and I was like, we have to come up with something, you know. And I was like, is there a way that you can rig the drums up to the uh, to the uh, camera? What, what am I looking at? To the, to the yeah. a apparatus so like on the, the camera. Crane or or the crane, whatever, right. right. Yeah. And he just he was like thinking about it and... And then he was like, well, we might be able to do that to where it like starts to take off. I'm like, yeah, that would be great. Well, so that brings us to John Denver. <laughs> yes. The, the egocentric John Denver. But who, uh, you know, I was really but surprised. See, yeah, go on. Well, I was surprised looking up 
his stats to to discover that that this is the only this theatrically released movie that he made because yeah. I think he's really good in this movie. He's pretty good, and I mean, it's his persona. It's like Carl Reiner was talking about how he's like, oh, this guy's got a big future in the movies if he wants it, and likening him to Jimmy Stewart or uh, or uh, Gregory Peck, you know. Or Gary Cooper, like just playing themselves yeah. in these movies. And so, you know, that was probably all bullshit, but they were saying that that was something that he was going to do. So, I mean, I think that the real auteur of this movie is Jerry Weintraub, who was uh, John Denver's manager. Oh. And so they might have had a falling out after this movie, and kind of Jerry had no reason to put him in anything else. Well, that's interesting. I don't know. I, I'm surprised you would say that Jerry Weintraub is the auteur. I mean, you've got Larry Gelbart, who uh, yes. w- was a huge, you know, had a huge right. success with MASH, the TV show. And you had Carl Reiner, which in another bizarre, maybe the, mo- maybe the weirdest thing about this movie to me is that Carl Reiner does, directs, um, Where's Papa in 1970, and then doesn't make another movie right until, until this. this one in 77. And to and they, go from Where's Papa to Oh God, it's an interesting. They're very far apart, which yeah. is why I think this is more in Jerry Weintraub's sensibility than it is yeah. in Carl Reiner's. And, you know, he totally picked Carl Reiner because think about it. Some of the jokes and the ideas aren't that far removed from what Reiner was doing with the 200,000 year old man. Right. Absolutely. No, I'm so, sure that's why he picked Carl Reiner's because the 2,000 year old man. Yeah. Right. I mean, and Gelbart. I mean, was this that much like his other stuff? Well, in that, I mean, in that, I think that a lot. This movie in 1977 is like the year that it, it makes sense in the in the mid to late 70s. That it's it's got this total fucking TV vibe to it. Yeah, and it's got this sort of TV sitcom writing mentality it's a bunch of these sort of easy one-liners um you know the, the making their way through 90 minutes of a of a of a high concept comedy right um that that pretends to be philosophical and i guess a little uh, is a little bit and but just in a very pop surface kind of way right and i think it totally were i'm not compl- i'm not saying any of those things in any complaining kind of way. I think it's a perfectly valid thing, product. Well, popular art it's form. It's completely a popular entertainment. I mean, it could not be more commercial. Um, and the thing about it is the first time I saw this over the weekend or rewatched it for the, for this, I flew into a rage. I hated it. I mean, I had, <laughs> oh my God, wow. I had had a few drinks, but I was sh- showing it. And I was like, I got, I got to watch this. And I was like, what? This is not even close to being funny. There's not one funny moment in this movie. This is a waste. Uh, I, I was just went on and on. It's like apologizing. Was, How could we be watching this? I can't believe I thought of this. <laughs> I can't believe I'm making anybody watch this movie. And then, uh, then you saw the sequels, and you're like, "Wait a minute, yeah, yeah, this fucking right. thing is a masterpiece, <laughs> <laughs> right?" But so I was like, "I, I should watch this again," because, uh, like I said, I, I'd had a few drinks, and mm. I couldn't remember. Like when I was reading your it. Dead Zone, post right, on right. Facebook. So I get it, right? 
But I watched it again, and I was like, okay, John Denver is really good in this, and and George Burns is typecast, and who else could do it but him? Um, but I, but don't you think? But I, maybe you don't think this. But don't you think George Burns is such a fucking pro? Like he's he he can't he doesn't know how to deliver a line incorrectly. Like he yeah. just nails it yeah. every single step of the way. I mean, you can't, you, the movie can't exist without him. You know, right? It, it, it that it's just a given. That, but but what I but there are movies real- that are built around actors or you know popular personalities like the 50 cent movie where it's like this whole movie but can't exist without him but it still sucks and he's not right. he doesn't know what the fuck he's doing right, Whereas right george burns you're like you can't go wrong with him like even, even george in, even an oh god you devil i'm like right. he's a great devil i mean yeah. i'm yeah. like this is clearly one of the worst movies i've ever seen but <laughs> i can't take my eyes off this guy yeah yeah but well, so, and that's the, I, the biggest. There's two big, big problems with Oh God, Book Two. One is David Burney, who's a fuck, and and that's the pro- what's weird about these movies is that there's tons of great actors in the smallest roles yeah. in all three of these movies. But other than John Denver, the the two other sort of leading men, David Burney and Oh God, Book Two, and fucking Ted Wass and Oh God, You Devil, oh, are the two Wass. worst motherfuckers that have ever been in movies. Yeah, I, I, I was like, I, I can't believe I'm watching a Ted Wass movie. I, uh-huh. I, I didn't make it to the end. But, oh. <laughs> but the thing about Oh God is it, it's, what makes it special is it's not that it's funny, because it's really not that funny. What makes it right. special is that they're 100% committed to it. Yeah. And, and the way they, because I was thinking what would be amazing, to, fascinating to watch these was like how... You know, Carl Reiner is making this Christian movie, and it's but it's not a Christian movie. No. It's it's not at all. Like no. they mentioned Christ once, and he's like, he's my son, and you're my son, and you know, all these people are, and, and Buddha's my son. And I was like, oh wow, it kind of it kind of blew my mind. Like all this stuff that I'd remembered about this movie wasn't really true, and that wasn't what the movie was about. Yeah, but John Denver. Um, yeah, here's I just got to say about that John Denver. He's he's real full of shit. <laughs> I had to say that. Um, he, uh, he here's the things I think about when I watch this movie and I think about John Denver. Well, first of all, it's amazing to me how often he is topless in this movie. Yeah. Um, and Carl Reiner talked about that in that interview oh, too. He, he goes, "Where do you see him take his clothes off?" I said, "Carl, <laughs> what are you doing?" But he really is like, I mean, you can, I mean, I know every contour of, of, of John Denver's nipples at this mm. point in my life. And I didn't expect to do that. Um, and, and, you know, I found myself watching the Omega man earlier this week. And in that movie, Classic. Charlton Heston is also topless way too much of the time. Like there's no reason for Charlton Heston to be as topless as he is in the Omega man, but he spends half that fucking movie wearing like pants and shoes, but like for whatever reason has taken his shirt off and topless a lot around. in planet of the apes and, yes. and certainly green. His shirt is off a lot in certainly green. Right. Like, so you a- could say, you could say it's a Heston thing, but then yeah. that doesn't explain why John Denver is equally topless. And Oh God, well, 
once again, back to this interview, Carl Reiner is saying like that makes him a leading man. He goes, oh, he's got leading man status because when he takes his glasses off, he's actually pretty handsome. And then once you see him without his clothes off, you're like, oh, well, that's a leading man. It's like, what? Like beefcake was was uh, was not beefcake back in the day. Yeah, but it was it was. No, it wasn't. But they were selling it. It was a product. Yeah. But, uh, but that's but I think I love that about both of them, about John Denver and Charlton Heston, is like neither one of them would be allowed to have their shirts off in a movie made in the last 20, even 25 years. Like you yeah. have for, for you to be topless, you have to be like that fucking werewolf guy in the Twilight movies. Um, you know, you have to you have to have like Hugh a Jackman? 12 pack and a no, 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 no. I don't know what his name is. Some, everybody does. I mean, yeah. e- even yes, uh, everyone's all built up. Even what's his face in the Meet the Parents movies? He, he's yeah, he's ben, got a six ben pack. Stiller. Yes, ben right. Stiller. Ben Stiller. <laughs> is that what you said? <laughs> I, I don't know. Uh, Maybe uh, you're going to have um, to check the tape. Yeah. <laughs> but so there's that. There's the toplessness of him. Then there's. Uh, you know, we were talking about Peter Fonda and his eyewear, but like, has anyone ever had more iconic glasses? And I'm talking about, I'll throw John Lennon in the mix. Like John Denver's eyeglasses, it seems like he was born with those fucking round glasses on his yeah. face. Like he popped out of his mother's um, uterus and right. and had those glasses on. Yeah. Which is not to say that Carl Reiner is wrong, because it's true. He takes off the glasses, and he looks perfectly fine in a way that a lot of people who wear glasses all the time look weird when when they take their glasses off. But he looks fine without them. But he found... There's a guy who found his look, that fucking hair and those glasses, and became, was so iconic with those things. Right. It's amazing to it. me. Amazing. Stuck with it. Yeah. Yeah, he has just as... He looks just as iconic in this movie as George Burns does, you know, with the, the hat on and, and his his own glasses. Although, as a brief aside to that, I will say that, that there's that scene early on where they're in bed together. He and Terry Garr will talk I mean, about George Burns. Second. Oh, OK. All right. Yeah, that would have been cool. Uh, yeah. But he does take his glasses off. And I noticed and maybe you did, too, front row in the big screen, that he's got those marks from the... Yeah. Um, and which is weird to me because that's the kind of thing you don't normally see in movies when people take their glasses off. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, but but it occurred to me as I was thinking about them, thinking I'm trying to think what other movies have I seen where I'm like, oh, that guy took his glass off, and he, and I mean, there's like a there's like a three or four minutes of him in bed, and like those red marks never go away. And and thinking about the way people shoot movies, it's almost like they said, wait, we can't. We can't not have the red marks from your glasses. We need to even put those on you so that they'll stay. Carl Reiner kind of revisits this subject uh, in The Jerk, which is right. a major plot point about those glasses and, and taking them on and off with that handle and the whole thing. Right. Which then causes people to go cross-eyed, which is... Right, well, uh, there is that. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think it's... there's In the book... His character is a writer, and in this, he, he's the assistant manager at a at a grocery store. And there's a lot of stuff about working at a grocery store in this, you know, about bagging incorrectly and whack. Was it like lathering up his cukes? 
What, what was that line about? Yeah, David Ogden Steyer says, you're not oiling your cukes. I had that written down as like Oiling your cukes. Yeah, you're yeah. not oiling your cukes. Uh, I would, that's good. We should talk about, we should go, we should, we should, we should do this rundown of the movie and, 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 uh, and hit those points. But, but you mentioned the book, which I haven't read, but uh, it's written by Avery Corman. And his other big book that yep. got turned into a movie is Kramer versus Kramer. So that's an interesting. I shocked that it was based on a book. And shocked even more that it was based on the, a book by the same guy who did Kramer versus Kramer. I, I, I can't believe it. Yeah, it's a little weird. Um, uh, I will say that the uh, and, and so uh, directed by Carl Reiner, who we've talked about many times on this show, uh, screenplay by Larry Gelbart, produced by the auteur Jerry Weintraub. Mm. Um, music, terrible music. Talk about terrible music. I know, again, you were bad-mouthing Michael Kamen, but, I mean, he's got nothing on Jack Elliott. Who really I'm so glad, because I thought you were going to be, well, I kind of like it. It's certainly, uh, <laughs> <laughs> you know, it reminds me of, yeah. Well, no, it's the, thing, it's the thing that makes this a, the TV-feeling thing more than anything else. Even more than the sort of hacky one-liner shit that they give George Burns to say throughout the whole movie and the sort of sitcom feel of the whole thing i think what really sells it and makes you think like oh fuck we're in 1977 and everyone was watching tv all the time is that goddamn score and those opening credits but the music gets really uh almost operatic at the end you know that sort of dude like it's kind of like whoa what's happening here (laughs) yeah um, but, but, but I do want to talk about that opening montage, uh, that you were just talking about of, um, John Denver going about his, his daily routine in the grocery store. The first time I rewatched it, I was like, what, you know, it, they, it seems like they spent a lot of time figuring out these shots and having John Denver do all this stuff. And they knew they were going to do this montage, but I was surprised at how they, there doesn't, there doesn't seem to be anything funny going on. And then the second yeah. time through, I was like, well, maybe there is. There's this at least one shot where he's seems to be talking to this old man in the dog food aisle. And I started fantasizing that maybe maybe this is a bit about this old man who's buying dog food for himself. And John Denver's talking to him about the different flavors of dog food, maybe. I don't know. But you don't hear anything that's going on. Did you figure out? Are there, are there actual sort of punchlines to any of those? shots no it, it, and it's it's a it's the it's a really opening it's a really quick opening credit sequence too i mean yeah. it's it, it the movie starts pretty fast i i gotta think they just cut a lot of that stuff out maybe i mean if you notice donald pleasance is <laughs> highly credited in there and he doesn't yeah. do anything he's in one scene and he's he, got maybe one or one line no i i wrote in my notes that I was rewriting today. I was like, Donald Pleasance is basically like a day player in this movie. Right. He's like an extra, like he literally, he's sitting at that table. I don't even, does he have a single line? Maybe he has a single line. Well, well, he's like number four in the credits and they cut. Well, that's crazy. That's insane. Yeah. They cut a lot of his shit out. And for some reason or another, they still had to have his Ah. name where it was on the credits. So, I'm thinking, I mean, this movie's pretty short. It's like under an hour 40. And I'm thinking they cut a lot of stuff out. Well, they certainly, the other place where it seems obvious that they cut stuff out is in the trial sequence, which again has this montage 
that I think is either playing under music or of some kind of voiceover narration or some kind of like dialogue from a different scene. But you see a bunch of those guys on the witness stand and they're interacting with the lawyers, but you're not hearing any of it. Yeah. So that again, I think maybe Donald Pleasance sits in the in the witness box at one point. I, uh, there's a few people that you're like, you see them at the trial, but they don't do anything. Yeah, it seems like maybe they were going to make some Catholic jokes and then they decided yeah. not to, you know? <laughs> yeah. That's, uh, yeah. that's con- yeah, there must have been some of that. It's like when you, you watch everybody at the table and uh, the character that Paul Servino plays is the, the one that's, you know, specifically singled out for scorn. Yeah, right. Paul Sorvino is the one out of all of those. I mean, that scene around the theologian's table is like a who's who of actors from the past three decades of of Hollywood, you know, movies. Right. But they, and you know, I we I recently watched this terrible horror movie called Audrey Rose. Oh. Also I, from around seventy seven or seventy eight, we were just going to watch it last night. Oh well, it's we did good. a we, we did a podcast on it, so maybe you want to watch it and then listen to Mike and I rant about it. Um, it's terrible, but it's you know entertaining enough. But the it's shocking how many great New York based character actors are in that movie and are given nothing to do. It's like how did you waste all of these people? And I don't quite have that feeling with Oh God. Especially because Paul Sorvino does get to do a bunch of stuff, but they're right. but everyone else around that table, it's like, why are you in this movie? And it all it almost seems like they're just doing Weintraub or Carl Reiner a favor. They're like, hey, can you sit here for a day while we shoot yeah, this thing? Totally. It's like, why don't you come um, down? We got something for you to do. But it's interesting that both Donald Pleasance and George Burns are in Sgt. Pepper, and um, although George Burns is, I think, the only one who gets to speak in that movie, because that movie's like an operetta or an opera. Um, I can't in that. I, no, but there's no dialogue. But Donald Pleasance doesn't say a word in, in Sergeant Pepper either. Although he has a pretty big role, he's like one of the, he's like the executive music executive who, who uh, convinces the Bee Gees and uh, Peter Frampton to go to. What song does does he sing a song? I don't. He I don't think so. he da- he dances a little bit, but I don't even think he sings. I don't oh think God. he gets to sing. This that movie. Oh my oh, god! Oh, it's the worst. It's it, it when that Bee Gees documentary, which is fucking great. Yeah, and they talk about what brought the Bee Gees down. Nobody brings up Sergeant Pepper's. I, I I can't believe that they just that that movie receives no blame. Well, I never saw it until this year, where again we had to do a podcast about it um, on the other. Oh, good and. What? What? Good. You you did a podcast on it. I did. So, so you've covered it. Good. We you're did. Not, you're not coming was, up with an idea right now. No, I'm not. It crackpot. It was crackpot cinema, and we did. It was a double feature. We did. We did it recently. It was after Mike died. It was the last one that Mike had set up for us to do, and then he died, and then so I did it with his co-host and with this woman, Cat Ellinger, from the UK, uh, and we did a double. It was crackpot Beatles. So we did. It was a double feature of Magical Mystery Tour, which also I hadn't seen since uh-huh. I was probably ten years old, and then you know just in black and white, probably on a right on an old TV, um, and Sergeant Pepper's. And the thing that I was surprised about people who had seen this movie and is sort of were younger than me and sort of grew up 
having seen it in a theater maybe or at least appreciating it on VHS or something was that they all had fond memories of it which I was like I always thought this was supposed to be the worst bomb and it, and it is but I will say that the that the Bee Gees when they're singing those Beatles songs that's that, that's not bad I mean they, right. they they have beautiful harmonies and and they don't fuck it up it's just everyone around them is fucking it up and yeah yeah 70s a- musicals are the worst. I mean, I love musicals. I, I think they're great. But 70s musicals, there's just no defending them. I can't think of a single one that I would say, yeah, you should watch that. Really bad stuff. Well, there weren't a lot of them, were there? It seems like there were. Uh, you know, there, and all, all the movies that came out after Grease, you know, and then what do you, you think get, about Grease? Xanadu. Uh, it's fine. It's fine, but but it's got no none of the grace of you know a great musical. It doesn't have any of that kind of stuff. It's just they're they're all sloppy, and the music <laughs> is fine. You know, it's just everything about those movies is a betrayal of you know Busby Berkeley or Vincent Minnelli. They have none of the grace of those movies, and and I just you ever watched the Jacques Demy? Yes, yeah. I, I, Umbrellas of Cherbourg is is great and and once again I mean that's just this fine piece of filmmaking that that this little piece of beauty in this world and movies like that just shit all over that kind of that memory and yeah, you don't you don't think Xanadu is up to that I love that Gene Kelly Xanadu is it's up to it's Kelly unbelievable up to you're just like who thought that this who looked at this and. I guess they could have looked at it and said, "Well, we got, we made money, we spent money on it, we got to put it out." It just really bad. I mean, I, I don't even it, like what's Bugs, Bugsy Malone. Bugsy Malone ooh. bugs the shit out of me too. Yeah. Well, I think the explanation for all that stuff, at least Mike used to say this all the time, and I think it's probably true, is like when you're in, when you're wondering what was going on, just think cocaine. Yeah, yeah. I wouldn't even blame these movies on cocaine. Oh, Co- cocaine's not that bad compared <laughs> to these movies. <laughs> Yeah. Uh, so anyway, so Jack Elliott did the music. The cinematographer is this guy, Victor J. Kemper, who fucking Jesus, this guy shot a lot of movies, including Xanadu. Uh-huh. Uh, but this guy shot, um, I mean, uh, it's insane, but he shot Husbands, the wow. Cassavetti's movie, The Hospital, The Candidate, um, the reincarnation of Peter Proud. Wow. He shot Dog Day Afternoon. Okay. He shot Mikey and Nikki, which is a movie I need to revisit and maybe we should talk about at yeah. some point. He shot Slapshot. Okay. He shot Audrey Rose. Mm. <laughs> he shot Coma, which is a movie I'd like to. Revisit. So Audrey Rose wasn't just a TV movie. Nope. Okay. Nope. Um, he shot Magic. All right. Good movie. Yep. And and Justice for All, a movie I'd love to watch again. Uh, He shot The Jerk. He shot Night of the Juggler. Have you seen that movie? No. James Berlin. Oh, I'll send you a link. All right. And then he he shot like two more decades worth of stuff. Uh, Not good stuff. Like he shot Beethoven. He shot Tommy Boy. He shot Jingle All the Way. So he was, uh, he was in demand. He shot, he's the cinematographer for Pee-wee's Big Adventure. No way. I mean, that's pretty stylized stuff. Huh. Yeah. 
Yeah, and people credit uh, Tim Burton. It's not. It's 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 Victor <laughs> uh, and Anyway, so the movie starts. It's got this montage of uh, blah blah blah. Um, uh, and and in the movie, Jerry is an assistant manager at a grocery store in California. He receives a letter at home after work, summoning to him to meet God the following day. He and his wife Bobby, played by Terry Gar, who I love, but I do think it's interesting that in 1977 she made two movies, this and Close Encounters, and she's basically playing the exact same role in in both of these movies. Yeah, she's good at exasperation with the with the husband, isn't she? I mean, I was really looking forward because I love her. I absolutely love her. And so, you know, I was like, well, at least she's in this movie. Um, but, but yeah, she's not doing anything that you can't see her do anywhere else, you know? Right. You know, I have to admit, I thought she died in the last five years, but discovered, no, no she's just retired when she has MS. Yeah. Which is yeah, she hasn't terrible. been seen in a while, but she's still there. Yeah, so he, he, Jerry and his wife, Bobby, dismiss it as a practical joke. He tears the note up and throws it away, but it keeps coming back, including showing up in a head of lettuce at the store. And Jerry feels compelled to honor the request. And um, I think it's the scene. It's interesting that that David Ogden Stiers from MASH, who's, who has the great, you're not oiling your cukes. Line, right. Is again, he's only in that one scene, basically. Yeah, and I love how he's telling him how to present the lettuce, how, yeah. how closely to trim the lettuce. Yeah. I mean, those are pretty good details that yeah. you only know from working in a a store like that. Well, and okay, I think that that brings up a larger point, which is that I think we both agree this is not any kind of cin- cinematic marvel, this movie. You know, for a movie that's made in the 70s, in the 70s, you watch it and, you you know, as a kid, I liked it just right. fine because I liked everything. But I think if I had been older, I'd been like, oh, God, this is so surface and so TV. But it's interesting in, in a movie that was totally just surface and TV and non-cinematic in any number of ways back in 77. You look at it now and you're like, whoa, look at all these details they plugged into this movie that if they made this remake today, you wouldn't get any of those details you wouldn't have any of that shit about right. the lettuce or the cucumbers or they'd anything. shave them away right yeah yeah and instead of packing a movie with with actors who are working way below their pay grade and way below their talent level like they are in this movie you would get a movie that's filled with people that they just scraped in off the street that were you know the first people to audition uh, it's, a, it's something we've talked about before that in these 70s movies, even the smallest roles are played by like real actors who bring something that you can't really put your finger on to every scene. But yet you're like, oh, this scene works because it turns out this guy who's playing the grocery store kid is actually really good and not just some faceless douche. Was that because they found these people at the beginning of their careers or is is it what you're talking about? Well... I mean, are you saying that we're going to look at movies that were made recently in 10 years and go like, oh, look, that was uh, what's his name's first role? Yeah. Like, I don't know. I don't think that's the case. No, that's not going to (laughs) happen. I think it's I think it's about the casting. I think the casting agents took their jobs way more seriously back in the day. Well, look uh, in uh, Oh God, part two. What's the woman that that. uh, The school teacher. Yeah. And right. she's and so she was good, the, and she's completely and she was a wasted. 
Yeah, and she was a hooker in, Pel- in taking a Pelham one, two, three. <laughs> oh yeah. But yes, but Roger Ebert singles her out. Singles her out in his right, yeah. right. He's like, why can't she be in the movie more? And I'm like, exactly. <laughs> yeah, but you don't get any of the. You rarely get that kind of a sly, secret, clever performance right. in small roles these days. Well, you can see this movie pointing the way towards '80s movies. And mm-hmm. by the time they get to the '80s, they're like, let's just shave all this other shit. And I mean, people are just going to see. George Burns. Why do we need all this other crap? And and yeah, that's the problem. Yup. So uh, Jerry goes to the appointment, finds an office with nothing but a chair and an intercom. He's greeted by a voice on the speaker. The voice attempts to convince the dubious Jerry that he really is God by demonstrating that Jerry's on the 27th floor of a building that only has 17 floors. After Jerry leaves the building, completely spooked, the voice begins to talk to him through Jerry's supposedly broken car radio. God informs Jerry that he wants him to spread the word that God exists. Um, uh, 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 have you ever been in an AMC Pacer, which is uh, <laughs> Jerry's car? Are you going to ask me if I'd like to be? <laughs> yeah, would you like to be? I don't know. I don't, I don't have I've, I've never been, but I... You know, that's another. That's like sort of an iconic. When as, as soon as I started watching this movie again, I was like, "Oh yeah, there's that car. I totally remember this car." Yeah, yeah. No, I, I don't know if I've. Uh, I think I might have had a friend who had one, but it's a really terrible car. Yeah, it's bad. Here's something interesting about this movie: is that there's no clunk on the head. There's no inciting incident. There's no like. There's no like alternate explanation as to what's going on. You know, there's no, it's, it's like, it's just so, it's, it's random in a way. You know, like in that John Travolta movie, Phenomenon, he gets these psychic powers, but it turns out it's because he has a brain tumor. Uh-huh. Like, there's none of that in this movie. Right. No, it's literal. It's, right. But not only that it's literal, not only that they're not trying to offer an alternate explanation as to what could be going on in Jerry's head. It's not like, you know, he smashed into a tree branch. And so maybe he's seeing God, but maybe he just has a concussion. It's not only that, it's that they, they, they don't offer, there's no, there, like I'm saying, there's no inciting, there's no reason. Like it's a totally random, you know, there, there is no, there is nothing about Jerry and there's nothing, there's nothing that, ha- he just gets this note. It's not like, it's not like even in in Freaky Friday where they happen to be at a Chinese restaurant or whatever. And I'm talking about the remake with them. Jamie Lee right. Curtis and what's her name? Where they're at a Chinese yeah. restaurant and this busybody Chinese woman puts a spell on them. You know, there's none of that. It's just sort of like, oh, this is just happening. And I think that's interesting because they don't, they usually try to come up with some, something to like start you on your path. There. Well, I mean, that's the point. He says, you're not the best and you're not the worst. I mean, the, the, the averageness of John Denver is the whole point of it. Um, yeah. But, I still you know, don't think they would let that happen if they were making remaking this movie today. I think they would say, we need something. There needs to be a scene where this sort of random act of kindness that John Denver does or something is what gets God's attention. Right. There's nothing that goes on, I don't think, that would make you think, oh, this is why God picked him. Well, there is a Chinese restaurant in book two. So That's true. If, if you do need that, you can get that from there. I, I do, and I, that's one of the things I appreciated about book two. Uh, but okay, so and, and the other thing, the other thing that I realized about this movie, if I'm trying to find what it is that it's sort of riffing off of, it's very Miracle on Thirty Fourth Street. 
I mean, th- that's what this movie is. If it's anything, it's a remake of that. Yeah. Instead of Santa Claus, it's God. Because it's got that whole court thing at the end, you know? Right. I, I mean, I was thinking of Harvey, and then I, I was thinking mm-hmm. of... Uh, yeah, that's a good uh, one, too. It's very Capra-esque. I mean, which is... There's nothing laugh-out-loud funny about it, but it, it is kind of like... Um, not that I don't like Capra. I love Capra, but... Well, and not that either one of those movies are Capra. Let's just set the... Just Harvey's so, not telling. Oh. No. Well, but, I never thought... But they are... Miracle on 34th they are, Street. You've never seen Miracle on 34th Street? I never thought that was Capra. Oh, okay. I was going to say, that seemed like a movie your church should have shown you uh, in between the other stuff. No, they didn't. No. No discussion there. <laughs> Um, but okay, so but out of all the sort of like one-liners, which may not be funny, but at least I understand them, I think. Although some of them are interesting in how strangely they're not part of our lexicon anymore in a way that they would have been. Like like George Burns says something later on about, uh, I think it's because they, they get a sketch, a police sketch artist to draw a picture of him. Yeah, yeah. And he complains, he says, it makes me look like a second story man, which for some reason I think I knew what that meant as a nine-year-old watching this movie, but I have no idea why I would. Uh-huh. And then, like, now I'm like, there's no fucking way my kids could watch this movie and have any idea what he means when he says he made me look like a second story man. Right. God God is kind of like, he, he's like, what, you're the last guy on the Dinah Shore show? You yeah. Know, he's yeah that, that's, for, that's for guys who write diet books, which is yeah, yeah. I think that's a pretty good, those are pretty good, like, TV-level sitcom jokes. Yeah. That's not bad. But he's but the very one that demanding. I don't understand. Yes, but the one that I don't understand that comes up at this point in the movie is he he's trying to figure out this 27th floor thing. And he goes back down to the lobby and he asks the doorman about the 27th floor. Can opener. And he says, I'm, a, I'm afraid you need a can. What does that mean? I don't know. Like a, to open up the top of the elevator. I, I thought about that, too. I had never heard that before. Right. I was wondering, have we seen the outside of this building and does it look like a soup can or something is it specific <laughs> to that building it's such a weird it's a very specific sort of joke i guess but i don't get that joke at all i mean yes i i totally think it's what you're saying is that you need something to you, you, it, the 27th it, floor is 10 stories above the roof so you need to like get through the roof but maybe, maybe it's a burglary tool opener yeah, yeah maybe maybe it's part of being a second story man yeah it's part of tools <laughs> of the trade yeah <laughs> You know, this score kind of has that Bill Conti vibe to it. <laughs> it's got that. It's almost oh, like <laughs> yeah, I guess. Um, so at home, Jerry tells his wife about the meeting and the encounter. And naturally, she doesn't believe him and suggests they go on a vacation and visit his brother-in-law, who's a therapist. But Jerry insists he isn't crazy, which fuels her suspicion about Jerry and his mental health. And the following day, God speaks to Jerry in the shower, some more topless, almost fully nude uh, John Denver. That's the scene then, I always remember. That's the scene that always stayed with me. I mean, there's mm-hmm. two great water scenes, or not great, <laughs> but yeah. you know the ones that I always think of when I think of this movie. That one and the and the raining in the car, which yeah. is great. Right. Which in a movie full of and one of the things that I find weird but very charming about all three of the Oh God movies is that all the miracles, with maybe the exception of the raining in the car, are so 
fucking chintzy. Yeah. It's so, so, so cheaply produced, you know? I, I, it's like, he just like, disappears. It's one of those things where they stop the camera, yeah. pull George Burns out of the frame. And hey, what are we supposed to think? Oh, my God, how did they do that? This came out the same year as Star Wars. We're fucking shocked by this stuff? I know. Jeez. I mean, which is maybe the point. I mean, George Burns, I think, his character, God, is making that point that, you know, miracles, whatever. But it's so... I don't think that that's really the explanation as to why his miracles are just the dumbest. Like, <laughs> you, <laughs> you know, like you know what? I got, got a super eight you got camera. Dumb miracles. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, uh, uh, anyway, so he, he appears to him in the shower, and then he appears to him in the guise of George Burns. And when Jerry asks him how he can permit permit so much suffering in the world, God explains that the world is based on luck. And free will. And remind me later, if we ever get to talk about Bruce Almighty, my problem with this whole free will thing. Okay. Uh, God tells Jerry that it's up to him to inform the world to heed his message, treat one another better, and look after the Earth's natural resources. God urges him to go to the press. So my favorite mistake that God cops to is that he says he made avocado pits too big. I think that's a that's a pretty good mistake. To- that and ostriches. Yeah, <laughs> right. Uh, but he takes a, he takes offense at the idea that there's something wrong with the giraffes. Yeah, but that that's in the second one, right? Oh, is that the second one? Okay. I mean, she says maybe you should have made the trees shorter. Right. And then he goes, Oh, yes. the trees shorter. <laughs> maybe. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, but here's something he takes credit for that confuses me, and I'm hoping you can shed some light on this because you've. Um, yes. I, you've written you've written songs and albums about oh, the months okay. of the year. I thought you were um, going to ask me because I'm a theologian. That too. Yep. So he says, I put summer before winter, didn't I? And I'm thinking, no, I don't think that's right, actually. In a calendar year, you didn't put summer before winter. And why is that even something to take credit for? What's the difference if summer comes before winter? What happened to fall? Right. That's the thing that gets me. Okay, so we're fall, both at a loss. <laughs> fall, fall gets nothing from this guy? Yeah. Maybe he doesn't, maybe he's not aware that fall exists. But I mean, they're on a movie set and they're got to be, and George Burns, who know, I think knows the difference between a good line and a bad line. Somehow they all worked it out. They're like, yes, that's a good thing to say that you put summer before winter. But I don't understand that line. You know, it's just one of the many inscrutable things that God says. <laughs> because, yes, okay, maybe winter starts in December or November. I don't even know when winter starts. Yeah, but he's not talking about a calendar year. He's just talking about summer starts before winter, right? Okay, so in what? In terms of what? In terms I don't of know. Because days he took to create the earth? I'm offended that fall isn't even in the equation when it comes to him, but... Yeah, I don't know. See, I'm, maybe see if he had said I put fall before winter, that would make more sense to me, and that would be a better line. So I see what you're saying about missing fall, but yeah, it it, it does take place in L.A. though, <laughs> right? Not really hot right. fall. Which speaking of, uh, did you notice how sweaty John Denver is throughout a lot of this movie? He's got like, no. a sheen to. <laughs> is he? Yeah. Yeah, maybe that's why he never got another role. Yeah. What's your favorite John Denver song? Ooh. Uh, uh, 
for baby for Bobby. Wow. It's a deep cut. Well, see, that's here's something. I used to have the uh, Rocky Mountain High, the Rocky Mountain High, on an RCA cassette, and it's a concept record, and it's split into spring, summer, fall, and winter. Uh, and I, I don't think it. I think it starts with summer, and then it's fall, then it's winter and spring. I can't really remember, but maybe God was referencing uh, the John, John Denver's Denver album record. Yeah. Maybe that that's actually a great explanation. That works for me. It's an inside joke. <laughs> yes. Kind of like when we see the Dick Van Dyke show on TV at, at a later point in this movie. Yes. I mean, and that's and that's the other when 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 Carl Reiner is on the Dinah Shore show. Mm-hmm. It's probably the closest this movie has to a laugh out loud moment is when he's doing the picture of Dorian Gray. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. It's pretty great. Um, my favorite is, uh, not a deep cut, uh, jet plane, leaving on a jet plane, which I found out. I thought that was Peter, Paul and Mary. Well, no, he wrote it. Oh, I didn't know that. And then he had a huge hit with it. I mean, they had the first hit with it, but then, yeah. I'm not surprised to hear that, but I can't really imagine myself ever listening to his version. I I don't know if I would have known that. That makes total sense. Um, I knew that song. I went to what they call sleepaway camp <laughs> in, yeah. in Maine, um, when I was like 11 or 12. Um, and the last night of sleepaway camp, uh, they would set up a big bonfire out in the woods and the camp counselors, it's kind of like the beginning of jaws where they'd have acoustic guitars yeah. and they'd be playing campfire songs but campfire songs for these counselors in again this was probably 78 or 79 uh were like sort of am mellow gold songs so i definitely remember all of us singing leaving on a jet plane on the last night of camp before we were gonna yeah out to our things and then uh uh when I started working for the Wisconsin Film Festival, one of the things I got to do was to make this uh, yearly trailer that we would show before every movie that we presented at the festival. And it's sort of like a uh, a thing just to sort of put our sponsors uh, up on screen. But, but I sort of had complete creative control as to what would happen in this one minute trailer right. that while, you were, while you were seeing like sponsor names and stuff, there would be something else going on. And, and, are the graphic identity for the for the second year that I got to do this, which was 2014, was this uh, sort of like a campfire. Uh, the poster, which I think is somewhere behind me, uh, yeah, I don't, you probably can't see it, but it's like a it's like a scene from nature out in Wisconsin Dells. It's like a waterfall. Nice and see it, yeah. Like a, so anyway, but there's that, and I was like, oh, I'm gonna make a. I'm just going to shoot a video of a, a film of like a camp of an actual, I'm going to get somebody to build a campfire and I'm just going to shoot those, those, the flames and stuff and just have these sponsor credits over it. And you're going to hear like the pops of the wood and all that shit. But what I really wanted to do and what I did do is I say, I, I also want to write like a campfire theme song for the festival. And so, but in my head, these campfire songs were these seventies sort of, am things and so the song that was in my head when i wrote the festival theme song was leaving on a jet plane i was like this is to me the ultimate campfire song so i tried to write something that was kind of in along those lines yeah i remember that a lot too i wonder if that still happens because 
you know, if anybody bothers to pick up a, an acoustic guitar anymore. And oh, got would, it. I'm sure it does because they do all the time. That's all YouTube is: is people doing their own acoustic guitar covers of like Christina Aguilera and and everything. Oh uh, yeah, I guess so. I, I bet you they do it like every night of camp. They don't even just wait till the end. I remember this one guy, and it was like a Christian thing, and he was playing uh, yesterday on the acoustic guitar, but mm-hmm. he had changed the lyrics to leprosy. And so what? it was <laughs> leprosy. Things are falling off of me. I'm not half the man I used to be. And, uh, you know, I, I guess it was okay for that kind of violence as long as it had to do with leprosy. You know, when I moved to Madison and started a band with some people here, uh, these guys that I was in this band with were, were had been raised Catholic and also in the seventies. And they talked all the time about, uh, I don't know what it's called. Catechism two or something like that, 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 that there would be these sort of pop catechism songs that got written or like new melodies for old Psalms or whatever the fuck. Do you know what I'm talking about? I think that's a Catholic thing. So I'm not really, yeah, I'm not, but you, you didn't associate with any Catholics. Not a Catholic. Nobody dragged you to the Catholic church for movie night and, and, and song night. I went to a couple of Catholic things, but I never got invited back because I went to a, uh, a, a casino night at a Catholic church and I fucking lost it. I mean, I was that close to being Jesus in the, among the money changers in the temple. I was like, how could this be? Like, yeah, don't bring this kid next time. Yeah. <laughs> uh, in Stevens Point, Wisconsin, where my wife grew up, they had they did this thing, uh, and I, th- I guess it was part of. I'm not sure if it was part of prom night. I think it was, in order to keep kids safe right. after prom, they did this casino night in the in the high school. So everyone would stay there and like gamble with fake money all yeah. night. I think instead of go out drinking or whatever. Yeah, I think it's a terrible idea. <laughs> I think it's awful. Yeah. Do you do you ever play Vegas and then get drawn into just enough to get free drinks? That's 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 about as much as that's about as interested as I am in all that. Yeah, I went to uh we had a friend who lived in Las Vegas and was getting married in Vegas and so we went to Vegas for the weekend to be at this wedding and it was at a casino, we stayed at a casino. I think I, I think I, I think I spent twenty dollars and get, I think I like bought some chips and sat down at a roulette wheel and lost it all in one hand and that was the only gambling. Yeah, I did yeah, it doesn't take much for me. Yeah. Oh, you're asking if we play Vegas? Yeah. Oh, I'm I like, see. What, hap- what happens when you go into these dens of iniquity and sin now, uh, as part of the local H experience? Uh, do you- yeah. Uh, turning over like no, card tables then <laughs> we're not really on yeah <laughs> we're not really on the well see that's fine I got no problem with that but don't bring it into the Lord's house That that's when I have a problem with it right that makes sense uh, uh, my favorite line from Terry Gar: I believe in God I just don't believe he exists that seems like a decent that seems that seems as close to right. like, a philosophical stance that this movie takes right and she unpacks it for you. She's like, I, you know, it's not that I don't believe he exists. I just don't believe you talk to him. You know, the whole concept of a guy who believes he's getting messages directly from God plays so differently today than, than it did in 77. Like, you know, you wouldn't make this movie as a, con- although I guess Bruce Almighty tries to. 
Um, yeah. But it's so much scarier. And But interestingly, like even, I guess, is the jerk 79? Like two years later, right. in, the, in the next sort of Carl Reiner movie, basically, I'm trying to think who's the equivalent to John Denver, and it's actually M.M. at Walsh. Yeah. Like, <laughs> who winds up shooting up a fucking gas station. Right. He's, he's heard from stuff. So it's interesting that, that Carl Reiner examined the other side of that coin. Not well, you also had this. What, what year was God told me to? Oh yeah. So yeah, I mean oh, that's that earlier. That kind of yeah. stuff was still in the air. Yes. Yeah. I mean, and this movie explicitly references The Exorcist, which right, which surprised me because uh, you could tell that the entire reason for this movie was sort of you know it's like this whole thing. What, what about the other side? Everything's about the devil and how God is dead, and it's like, what about a movie for people who don't believe that? And they explicitly reference that in, in in that scene where he's talking about the little girl throwing up pea soup and everything. Yeah. Of course, by '84 they'd completely you know given up the ghost on that and said, "Yeah, the devil is more interesting." Yeah. Yeah. Right. He is. Yeah. I, I mean, you know, although Morgan Freeman is fun in in Bruce Almighty. Yeah, I, I, I would I would have to watch that one. I don't, oh, you didn't do it. I don't think you I've seen do it. it. No, no, no. Uh, I hadn't until this week. Uh, but I just found myself over the weekend like, oh, fuck it. I'm just going to do this. And so I, like I had sent uh, links to all the old God movies, which I watched. And then, uh, and I'd never seen the sequels before. Um, and then Bruce Almighty. And Dogma. Dogma the, the Kevin Smith movie, which I hadn't seen since it came Did out. Did you watch that? I did. Oh God. Yeah. There's like an, ex- it's interesting. Like that I, I drew like a, a timeline or a graph. Like, a, well, I don't know what the fuck I drew. I drew a line <laughs> and on the left side of the line is uh Bruce almighty, which is like taking this concept and being as stupid and just slapsticky and as dumb and thoughtless as you can be. About right. It. And then, Oh God, which is kind of in the middle of this line, which is like, stupid but you know has a couple of clever moments and is sort of thinking about this in a philosophical way not really but kind of and then dogma which is on the other side which is this total fucking like you know deep dive into all this you know catholic i guess it's is it catholic stuff i don't know the fallen angels it, is that strictly yeah it's pretty catholicism catholic. yeah I mean, it thinks it's got something to say. I, oh, it's got nothing to say, uh, but no, but it totally thinks it does. It thinks it's being yeah. the most intellectual and provocative and philosophical, and yeah. also and also has time for Jay and Silent Bob. I don't. I'm not a Kevin Smith fan at all. No, so. he's the worst. He is the absolute fucking worst. The only uh, God movie I decided to watch, other than the Oh Gods, was uh, Carl Reiner's turn in History of the World Part One. Mm. So. So I thought that was interesting that, I mean, it's just his voice, but it's pretty good. He does it with authority. And, yeah. you know, it's pretty funny. Well, I also took the opportunity to watch Skidoo, which comes up all the time on other podcasts that Mike would do that I'd never seen. Otto Preminger directs Jackie Gleason as a retired mob hitman who is asked by God to put, to or uh, is supposed to, yeah he's told by god who's groucho marx to kill this dude who's in prison 
I don't even know why. And it turns out that God, a.k.a. Groucho Marx, isn't really God. He's just a ma- a gangster boss who calls himself God, or people call him God. And he lives on a yacht. And it's such a fucking disaster, but, but it's kind of fascinating. Wow. And I think is the, intro- is the first movie uh, for Austin Pendleton. And Austin Pendleton, Austin Pendleton totally steals this movie from all of these other heavy hitters that are in the movie. Uh, I've heard of Skidoo. Definitely. Yeah, it's uh, it's something else. Uh, you know, Mike and I did this commentary track for this movie called Shadow of the Hawk. From, uh-huh. I think also 1977 uh, with Jan Michael Vincent. And, Perfect. Uh, more more importantly, Chief Dan George. You know uh, him? No, may I? I might. You ever see Little Big Man with Justin yes. Hoffman? Is yeah. So he's the old tribal leader. Who okay. Brings up, um, and, and so. He and I said during that commentary track that Chief Dan George is like the baby Yoda of this movie and that he's this adorable on screen presence that sort of covers up everything else about the movie. And in all of these Oh God movies, George Burns is the baby Yoda. It's like it doesn't really matter how shitty the rest of the movies are. Like every time George Burns is on screen, you're like, oh, George Burns. You know? Right. It's like just right. And this idea that it's so it's. It's so entertaining that George Burns is God, which doesn't wash anymore because nobody gives a fuck about who George Burns was or if they know who he was, you know, they're not going to go, oh, this guy. And as it goes on, he starts to annoy me more and more. Like by the second movie, he's doing that, like almost like like he's a chimp (laughs) thing with his lips. He just keeps doing it. I'm like, I don't want to watch you anymore. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> that's funny i didn't get that at all like i think even in the abstract like he's just an entertain like even if you don't know anything about george burns i just think as a screen presence you're like oh that's adorable yeah. um but and but i also find it f- interesting like i think even in the first oh god movie he's 79 or 80 years old mm-hmm. and then by the and then the, the third movie is i don't know like seven years later He's remarkably well-preserved throughout all three. You know, he doesn't seem to change at all as far as his physical appearance. He's wearing the same toupee through all, yeah. all three movies. and Yeah, he almost, almost seems sharper when, as yeah. the devil. He seems really sharp. And I was like, oh, hang on, you know, I should watch this. <laughs> and then when he comes back as God, I was like, I, I got to go eat. I got to do something. Well, I'm I'm sad that you didn't stick through because the the worst and best part of Oh God, You Devil is the is um, towards the end when God and the God this, oh, this, what, what I will watch it. Uh, are they going to have a a fight? They play poker. They play a hand of cards to 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 win Ted Wass's soul. Oh, God okay. and the Devil play poker, but it's cross cut with Ted Wass up in this hotel room. ODing on a bunch of pills, like he's committing suicide because he can't take it anymore. It's pretty dark. Can't take the success, yeah. But it's 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 horrible, and yet amazing. You know, they finally spend a little bit of money on effects, and they have George Burns in the same shot with George Burns. He does like a Dead Ringers thing. Yeah, <laughs> exactly a Dead Ringers thing. Yeah. So you gotta go. You got a lot of bells and whistles in, the, in that movie, and Andrew Bergman wrote it. Which well, that's the me. pain of it. That's that. That really is the most painful thing to go from the in-laws to, oh God, you devil. That's rough. <laughs> he wanted to work with George. Yeah, and to you know, in fairness, he says I had this shitty play that I wrote, and when they came to me with this idea of writing an oh God movie, I was like, well, I have this stupid. 
play I wrote about this guy who sells his soul to the devil to become a rock star. Um, and he just dusted it off. Right. And was like, here, you know, here you go. A lot of respect <laughs> for the audience there. <laughs> yeah. Uh, well, well, talk about lack of respect for the audience. And you were talking about, you know, Brooke Adams and um, uh, Karen Allen stuff and how, you know, agents in Hollywood were, were trying to sell the flavor of the month and with all these actresses in the 70s. But I mean, what the fuck was going on with Ted Wass? Who was his agent that he got him into, you know, movies or any anything? I mean, so what a non-entity. Soap was a big hit. Soap was a great show. I really like yeah, but Soap. nobody, yeah, but nobody thought, oh, it's because of Ted Wass, and I, I need to get this guy up on the big screen. No, but Richard Mulligan had done a couple of movies. Uh, That's true. I guess, and put- interestingly, he had done, he done, he did Blake Edwards. He did Sob. Sob. And then Blake Edwards, you know, out of all the dumb things he ever tried to do, he got Ted Wass to be the star of like one of those posthumous Pink Panther movies. Like they have Ted Wass playing Clouseau's nephew, and he's like the star of like Trail of Revenge, the Revenge of the Trail of the Pink Panther, or whatever the fuck, which I've never seen, but I can guarantee you, right, has got to be at least as horrible as the fucking Steve Martin Pink Panther movies, which yeah. is something I could never forgive Steve Martin for. Again, having not seen one second of them, I just know this has got to be the worst fucking thing ever. But yeah, I yeah, don't it's kind of like the, the oh Ted god, Wass, you devil. The, yeah. And so, but I was thinking, you know, Ted Wass, not that he gives off a vibe of anything except a fucking, you know, garbage can, but he sort of, <laughs> he sort of has a Rick Springfield thing going. Totally. It would have been, totally been great if they had Rick cast Springfield. Rick Springfield. Yes. Yeah. Like he, that's who should have been in the movie. And the, Rick Springfield should have played both parts. He should have been the, yeah. the, you know, it should have been one of these sort of face off things. The musical had. numbers are shocking. And the fact that <laughs> they're based on Rick Springfield so so baldly based on rick springfield it's it, it's amazing to me i was just well, about and to turn it rick off springfield was an actor and a sort yeah. of a struggle you know what they could have like, got rick springfield yeah he's like i don't want to do that I'm, I'm a musician now all right you're right i mean in his in fairness he probably wouldn't have done it well he was doing soap operas he would have done it he yeah but he was it. doing music to wait he wasn't doing soap operas anymore like you know, and he was headlining his own movies, Hard to Hold. Didn't he do soap operas after the music died down? I don't know. I think it was soap operas, and then okay. he hit. And then as soon as his contract was over with the soap operas, he he went full time. And then he had his own movie, Hard to Hold. And he's not gonna he's not gonna be anybody's. Yeah, it was it was never in the cards. He's got his own he's got his own movie to do. Who do you like better, Rick Springfield or Cliff Richard? Uh, yeah. That's a tough one. Because I love that Cliff Richard song, It's So Funny How We Don't Talk Anymore. Yeah. Yeah, Cliff Richard is... is uh, You can take a deep dive into Cliff Richard. Like, he's, he's really important to those people. Um, <laughs> right. It's pretty amazing. But you could, you could take a medium dive into Rick Springfield. He's, you could... But, you know, once we, I mean, I, I like that one of those songs is written by Sammy Hagar. Which one? I've Done Everything For You. Oh, oh, that's a great song. Sounds just like a Sammy Hagar song. And you're like, oh, yeah, yeah. it's obviously a Sammy Hagar song. But I, but honestly, I, I'd rather hear Rick sing it than Sammy. 
Have you ever heard Sammy sing it? No, have you? No. No, I haven't. <laughs> Has he ever? Is there I, a recorded version of it? There's got to be a recorded version. Yeah, it's like when Elvis Costello wrote a whole album for some woman who I think only ever recorded the one album. I don't know that. There must be Elvis demos. <sighs> yeah, I don't remember what it's It's kind of like that. It kind of sounds like that one Linda Ronstadt album where she was doing some Elvis songs, and which is a great album. Yeah. Uh, anyway, well, we've gone way off track here. Yeah, that'll happen. Uh, so here's some other, uh, mirror. Well, here's a line that's, that's in, plays differently in 2021 where God says I could be anyone. I could even be a woman. <laughs> yeah. Um, what's the thing I wrote this down as a quote, but I can't even remember what it was about. Millionth customer that crossed that bridge gets to shake hands with the governor. Who says that? And why uh, it's say? it's George Burns, and he's basically saying you're not the best, you're not the worst, but you happen to cross the bridge you at just the right time, to, right? And you're the one, the the hundredth customer, um, which which is which is I I think pretty good, and and the whole idea that you know it's not an important man that that ever gets picked by God. It's it's always the guy who goes, why me? It's like because you are you. And and that is, that's it. Which always sounds like, you know, like an old vaudeville joke. But it's kind of, all that stuff is kind of from the Bible. That whole type of humor. Yeah. So, so what do you, so here's my thought. Out of all the miracles that God talks about, the one that read probably, I don't know. I should have shown this movie to my kids. And I say kids, but like my son is 16 and my daughter is, um, yeah, they're not going to like it. 20. But no, but I wanted I wanted to figure out if the references mean anything to them anymore. What and there's the one, you know, out of the miracles that he talks about, he says the 69 Mets. And I and again, as a kid, I'm like, yeah, 69 Mets, but do people is that a thing? Do people still talk about the 69 Mets? It wasn't to me. Outside of New York. But I, I it can, wasn't to you. No. I mean, I can get any time that somebody makes a baseball joke what they're doing. You know, it does it means fuck all to me. Because I don't care about baseball, but I understand why it's supposed to be funny. And I think most of the jokes, you understand what's going on and why it's supposed to be funny. But that's the thing. There was no laughter and which at first I was like, what is, what am I doing here? Uh, I noticed how you didn't at any point send me an email saying I'm rethinking this. <laughs> no, it's too late. You know, it was like we've we've already dove in. I knew you were watching. I knew you were watching Kevin God Smith damn. movies. It's too late, man. Goddamn, Kevin Smith. I mean, I still I think just it's remember. fascinating. Uh, yeah, and you know, I mean, it, the movie doesn't come up a lot. Yeah, even no. though it was it was made more money than it's probably made more money than the Jerk. You know, what I mean, it was like this. It knocked Star Wars out of the top spot for one week. In '77, hmm. I mean, this this was a big commercial movie, but nobody talks about it. You know, they, yeah. they certainly don't talk about it as much as they talk about uh, "Where's Papa." Well, I don't know about that. Maybe you might be right about that, but it's interesting. That "Where's Papa" is a, is, a, is another movie to me that I feel like has sort of mostly been forgotten and was never was never a big hit to begin with. Yeah, reason. but like even in in the the review, 
uh, Ebert's review in 77, he calls Where's Papa immortal. So, oh, uh, okay. I mean, it, it, had, it had achieved a status of, you know, being this bad taste classic, which makes this good taste film all the more crazy. Yeah. But I would say, you know, if I'm trying to figure out the through line for Carl Reiner, I do think that they're both, uh, you know, I think he's a pretty efficient director. And I think he, he, it's true that in this movie, you do get these hints here and there that this was longer and flabbier mm. and that they really toned it, tuned it up in the editing and got rid of a lot of bullshit that was probably keeping it from going but the end product you know it, it is a quick it is 90 minutes and it just sort of yeah goes by it doesn't get weighed down i appreciate that what i appreciate maybe the most out of, of, of uh, uh the most about it especially compared to the two sequels is that it never goes maudlin it doesn't have it doesn't get it doesn't get sappy there aren't any sick kids or you know, or little girls who are being bullied or like their parents are divorcing or whatever the fuck is going on in those other movies. Right. I mean, oh God, you devil's got this crazy thing where the kid has scarlet fever at the beginning. And so God's been looking over him his right. whole life. And it was, I had no idea what was, I was like, wait, wait, what? <laughs> I didn't yeah. realize it until it, I, yeah. I, yeah, I got to finish that movie. Yeah, uh, you know, that's all right. Uh, oh, it's interesting. I, you know, I feel like we're almost done talking about this, which is fine because we, <laughs> we are trying to keep it mean, under the two. Everybody hours. gets what how it ends, right? You know. But uh, but but I'm I'm surprised as I look to where I am in the synopsis that I'm about I, my note for the next chunk was. I just want to say, did I miss something in the first half hour of this movie? They have kids. So I realized, wait, we're only a half an hour into my, or maybe we're halfway through. But is it, am I wrong? Do we not see or hear anything about them having kids until maybe the halfway mark of this movie when suddenly they have these two kids? Until they sit them down. Yeah. Yeah. No, I don't think they're around. There's, but there's all first. these scenes of the two of them alone in the house at night. And they're, yeah. They're, you know, they're fucking around yeah. and they're in the bathroom together and stuff. Like... Where did those kids come from? How did they not get introduced right off the bat? Presumably, yeah, or at least show up in the pre the opening credit sequence. Yeah, I mean right. those little pricks presumably presumably <laughs> are asleep during all that stuff. I but guess then it's the, just such a weird the way they don't support their dad and they shit all over them. I mean, I guess that's what kids do. So mm -hmm. that makes oh, a yeah, lot of sense. But uh, but yeah, those. Those little bastards don't deserve any any scenes than they've already got. Well, I I'm, I agree with you. I just think, wow, the something got lost in the in the editing here, or something. Um, but uh, also, there's a there, there's a there's a a part of the movie where George Burns is doing the driving, and right, not that I think he was actually driving in those, but he it seems like George Burns knows how to drive, which I find fascinating because I always get the sense that these sort of Hollywood legends have either never have driven or stopped driving decades ago because they all have sort of limo drivers and stuff. Right. So it's fascinating I, to me that George Burton seems like he knows what to do behind the wheel. And I think he's kind of famous for being chauffeured around, wasn't he? I, 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 had, had, I guess I'd have to look I mean, no, this up. I don't up. know if that's a specific I, I think, thing. But. I think, you know, he was always, he made a lot of jokes about his chauffeur. I'm fucking making that up. I, I don't know. But I, did I you ever did you ever get syndicated uh, viewings of like the Burns and Allen show? I did. I feel like later on, but I yeah. did see some Burns and Allen shows. Yeah, I remember that being on. But uh, 
Yeah, yeah, it was on. It was on like channel 60. I think it was. I, I watched it very rarely, though. What about Dinosaur? Did you watch the Dinosaur show? I watched the Dinosaur show. It's a little hard to say, but but yeah, I watched all that stuff. Merv Griffin and uh, uh, Donahue. I like Donahue a lot. I went. I was in the audience once for Merv Griffin. I don't yeah. remember anything about it. I don't remember who the guests were, but I know I was there. Yeah, it's weird being in the audience of those shows. It really is. You ever been to like Saturday Night Live or anything like that? No, I was on, I went to Letterman once and I was, I went to the uh, Morton Downey Jr. show once. Which oh my was, God. Yeah. A friend of mine got tickets and we went there and we, we just couldn't, couldn't not go and couldn't believe it while we were there. It was, it was crazy. W- were those recorded in Chicago? Yeah. Okay. How about Oprah? Did you ever go to Oprah? Nope, never never did Oprah. No. No, we were big fans of Morton Downey Jr., so uh, we, we had to go. This was before or after he did the swastika on his forehead? Uh, I think this was before. I mean, he was kind of, he was happening, and the, the shows were, were packed, and he was doing his whole get the hell out of here thing. And he's just repulsive and fascinating. And uh, a friend of mine was like, I've got a, I've got a, a present for you. We're, we're, we're going to go do something. And I was like, what? We pull up and we're at the Morton Downey Jr. show. I'm like, oh, okay. Did Local H ever do like a, like a national talk show thing? Like a. Uh, we did. Like we did uh, Conan. But, uh, you know, I mean, I, I wanted to be on Letterman more than anything in the whole world. Uh, and that never happened. And that's probably my biggest regret. I wish we could have been on Letterman. Well, you know, when I moved to the Midwest, I, I suddenly got access to like three bands that I um, had never been able to see in New York. Um you guys, and I don't know why I hadn't seen you in New York, but I mean, I moved here in 97, so, I mean, there wasn't that much time before I moved here where I right. would have seen you in New York, but I, so, but this was the best thing about moving to the Midwest for me, is that suddenly I had access to these three bands. It was Local H, The Frogs, yeah, um, who I don't think I'd known anything about until I was about to move to Madison and we were here looking at the house or having to sign paperwork or whatever. And I knew we were going to go back to Brooklyn and then drive to Madison in this minivan we had with as much of our stuff as we could, although most of our stuff was being moved by mm-hmm. movers. Um, and I stopped at a, at a record store cause I knew I was going to have like one of those 10 disc CD changers in the, in the minivan. So I went to a record store here in Madison and bought a bunch of used CDs. And one of them was this frogs EP that I think Billy Corgan produced uh, the star job EP. Have you ever heard this? Yep. It's pretty fucking great. Yeah. And so that was the thing I wound up listening to more than the other like 20 CDs that I bought combined. Um, So I was super excited to suddenly be in their neighborhood and get to see them. Yeah. Well, they were, they would open up for everybody. Everybody loved to have them open up their shows. So, I mean, I saw the frogs a lot, um, not going to see their shows, but just them opening up for other people. That's interesting because the first time I saw them, and I think it was at one of those rooms in the rave in Milwaukee. Yeah. I saw one of those shows. Uh, Wesley Willis opened for them and I guess he would do that from time to time. So that, 
Right. He was a constant opener to Wesley Willis. Well, I just, so that I'm going to stop the story I was in the middle of telling you just to tell you to bring up something that I meant to bring up at the beginning when we were talking about musicians who become actors. The, one of the exceptions to the rule and somebody who I think is, has, has, has had a better time of it uh, is Dwight Yoakam. Yeah. And Dwight Yoakam is a guy, and I never gave it, especially when I lived in New York growing up, I didn't give a single shit about country, new country, any kind of country. Right. But I would see Dwight Yoakam. He was a guy who used to open for all these college and alternative bands that I would go see. I used, I saw Dwight Yoakam open for the Violent Femmes like more than once and yeah. other other bands. So, uh, you know, and so I'd be like front row for this Dwight Yoakam opening set. With yeah. That. Dwight Yoakam's cool. Yeah, he is. And a good actor. Yeah. Somebody who, sometimes I, sometimes I'm halfway through watching a movie before I realize, oh wait, that's Dwight Yoakam. Right. Like he's in those crank movies. And uh, I, I'm pretty sure that like the first time I saw the first crank movie, I didn't, didn't dawn on me that was Dwight Yoakam for a while. Yeah. You, you're like, oh shit, that's Dwight Yoakam. That always happens. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So uh, the three bands. The and third I, band. I know why I'm telling you this story. The third band. Local H, the Frogs, and then the third band was Enough's Enough. Oh, God. <laughs> Do you know those guys? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. Do you know Johnny Monaco? Uh, he took over for he Donny, took over. Like, played guitar, and then was. I think I've met him, but I, I don't really know him that well. You're gonna edit this yeah. whole part out, right? Oh, I could. <laughs> sure. It, it, we're gonna say bad stuff. Yeah. I mean, no, I'm not going to say I, bad stuff. I'm not. Oh. No, I remember when he took over, uh, and and then at a certain point it was just Chip. Yes, yeah. and that's what it is now. Yes, that's a fucking disaster. I thought that it Johnny can be. Monaco, talking about an exception to the rule, I thought that Johnny Monaco is one of the few people who I, who like took over for a lead singer, frontman for the band, and actually the shows were as good or better than they had been. I think that that Donnie V is a fucking asshole complete insane person but is a brilliant songwriter like yeah amazing johnny amazing monaco song. sounds like he should be in oh god you devil yes yeah yeah he's got seven he, years he yeah yeah he got he had he made a deal with the devil for seven years he got to front enough's enough uh <laughs> before chip thought he could be the lead singer yeah yeah uh crazy shit but but all the only reason i was talking about it at all is because out of out of those three bands like amazingly they're the ones who got on letterman like they played letterman yeah yeah so that sucks you guys totally should have played letterman yeah it really sucks thanks for bringing it up (laughs) (laughs) you brought it up i didn't bring it up oh no i did oh you brought it up yeah yeah but you got you weren't conan that's great yeah it was it was a lot of fun what did you play on conan uh, all the kids are right. Oh, fantastic! Yeah, that's what that's what turned me on to you guys. It was a it was a good time. Yeah. Um. Uh, uh, oh, uh, speaking of stuff that I can't talk about on the air. So the the motorcycle cop who pulls him over. Did you recognize who that is? No. Uh, it's John Ashton of uh, Beverly Hills Cop and um, right uh, Midnight Run fame. Yeah, unfortunate. I did not recognize him at all. Is he like? He's really young. Like slim, right? Yes, young yeah. and slim, and he's wearing a hat, so you can't tell if he's losing his hair yet or not. But I like John Ashton a lot. I'm a big fan of his performance in uh, Some Kind of Wonderful. 
I like the crazy religious lady outside the house. This is maybe this is maybe the most Carl Reiner like. Oh, okay, we're in where's she? She says to Jerry, "Give me, give me your golden staff." Yeah, she says it's okay. You can have my body. God said it was okay, or something like that. Yeah, give yeah. me your golden staff. Yeah, I think the most Carl Reiner bit is when uh, Paul Servino is is talking and he's talking about the, like, there are pillars in the Jewish community and they're looked up to and they're looking at each other like, what is this guy talking about? Yeah. So like, yeah. They're like easy, easy. You're going too far here. Yeah. Uh, chintzy miracles we've talked about. There's a Watergate joke about nobody erasing tapes anymore. Oh yeah. I didn't that even get that. In the seventies. Oh, there you go. There See? you go. Thank you. Good. Well, I mean, it's time for the big trial. Yes. Right. But uh, what, yeah. So what we've talked about it a little bit, which is that there are these montages that seem like they cut some of the trial out afterwards. And we're like, oh, right. And it's almost like Paul Servino is suing him for defamation. And that's how the trial starts. Right. Yes, it does. Reverend Williams then sues Jerry for slander in court. Jerry acts as his own attorney and calls God to the witness stand. The judge threatens Jerry with contempt of court, but God enters the courtroom and testifies. Everyone in court can see and hear him, and he performs a card trick <laughs> to make himself disappear to prove his legitimacy and makes himself disappear. I mean, those two things, that card trick and him disappearing <laughs> are the two, like, wow. Well, the this card is trick is done. It's like, whoa, are you going to teach me a card trick? I've seen cards disappear before, and it's supposed to lead up to making himself disappear and i i guess we're all our mouths are supposed to drop open too uh right. yeah it's really not a cloud of smoke or anything no. just completely Nothing. disappears he doesn't even dissolve it's just like one of those boop, boop, right you now like okay yeah i figured out how to do that in fifth grade um uh, <laughs> but but um it that does remind me of this thing we were talking about earlier with this joke about being making him look like a second story man. Is that the, I used to be able to do this card trick, and I, I don't even remember how it works. Have you ever done this one, where you you have like the full stack of cards, and then you have four jacks, and you tell this story about these four jacks are are burglars, and they're going into this house to steal stuff from this house, and you take those four jacks and you tuck them into the middle of the deck of cards which is like it's like a house of cards uh-huh. you know but it's really just a deck and then you're like but then they hear the police coming and then the guy or no there's one jack who stays on the roof and he's like standing on the roof and the other three guys have gone into the house and ve- you keep putting cards you keep putting these jacks into different parts of the deck and saying the first burglar went to the first floor of the house and the second burglar went to the second floor of the house yeah uh, he was in this. He was the second story man, and then the third, you know. And then there's this lookout on the top of the roof, and he sees the cops coming, and he yells down, "Hey, come out of the house!" And then you peel the top three cards off of this deck of cards, and they're all those jacks. They've somehow gone from being in the middle of the deck to like making their way up to the roof of the house, and that's the trick. That's the trick. <laughs> You've never done that one, huh? No, I've never done that one. I didn't even know that was a trick. It doesn't sound like much of a trick. Well, it is because you show everybody that you've got the four jacks in your hand and then you are like feeding those cards into the middle of the deck of the card and then somehow without you doing anything, they arrive back up at the top. <laughs> okay. So the ones who rise to the top, I think. Yes. Okay. So a second story, man, 
is a burglar who enters yeah. through an upper story window. Oh, so you knew this? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Oh. I'm saying I knew it. I oh. got the second story man reference. I just don't know that anyone else would today. But it's but it's interesting to me that as like a 10-year-old kid, I got it. And it was not and it, here's the thing about this movie is it's again it's one of these PG movies which in our minds now think this is a kids movie, but it's not. But on the one hand, it's not really a kids movie and PG didn't necessarily mean that it was a kids movie back in the right. 70s. On the other hand, I really do think that in a lot of ways, kids were more culturally literate. Mm -hmm. And that kids had heard of Second Story Men. Yes. Maybe because because that's a phrase from 30s and 40s gangster movies, maybe. And and those were the kind of movies we would watch on TV. Right. Right. It wasn't that far away. Like, this... This movie is further away from where we are right now than those gangster movies were from where yeah. we were back then. And and also going back to that interview with Carl Reiner, she uh, the interviewer, she was asking, why isn't this a G-rated movie? And so th- there was some question about whether or not this should be G or PG. And I think he wanted to be PG because he thought he was dealing with adult things and some people couldn't accept that God would be shown as a man, you know? So there was some so, question about whether or not it should be PG. But so was it PG because the filmmaker said, we want this to be PG or was it PG? Cause they put something in there that would make sure that it wasn't G. Well, he Is said there there's in it that... some language, uh, but oh. not nothing really bad. You know, I mean for this movie to be, have the same rating as, as Invasion of the Body Snatchers is crazy, you know. Or even Jaws. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, this this movie is also, this. at least, it took a lot from the parallax view, though. You, you, you got to admit that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I watched the parallax view last I, night. I know you did. Because <laughs> it's, uh, it's on Amazon Prime. Like, yeah, yeah. You finally watched it and saw what was going on at the end. And... It holds up, man. Oh yeah, it's, it's great. Movie. It's it's terrific. But I was, you know, I was almost I was sort of bullshitting when I was saying like, hey, it starts off as one movie and then winds up and then the bottom falls out of this sort of like The Parallax View? Are we talking about the Parallax View again? Yeah. <laughs> okay. <laughs> <laughs> but it but it but it but I was right. It does do that. It really is that Warren Beatty, like, you know, they really do set you up to think this guy's involved, you know, superhuman. And then he's not. Anyway, <laughs> um, uh, uh, PG, PG. What was it? Oh, well, there's the oil. There's so there's the golden. There's a couple of double entendres that give me your golden staff. Right. Well, that scene is the most adult thing that I can think of in the entire I, and, movie. And then if you want to think of David Ogden Steyer talking about oiling your cukes, I mean, there's. I mean, maybe that's. I don't know yeah. what that is. Uh, <laughs> I mean, it makes sense to me why it's PG, but the the wide gulf of what what qualified as PG is was as big as the Red Sea. Yeah, but I actually think that's as it should be. I mean, I don't. I don't think we need ratings at all. Fuck it. Well. <sighs> If it's okay, I, I don't know. If, if this movie's PG and and Invasion of the Body Snatchers is PG, it, it doesn't mean anything, you know. And it's supposed to mean something, right? I'm, d- I'm it's totally to give down. You some with it. kind I'm, of warning, right? Well, 
Yeah. And, and, and they do get more specific. They do say PG, you know, mild violence or language. Oh, no, yeah. They do tell you. PG. I think. Rated R for fear. Have you seen that one? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> for fear. Oh. Rated okay. R for fear of, of being PG and nobody coming to see Right. It. We're, we're afraid. Right. We're afraid we're not being hard enough. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, John Denver's outfit in court seems like the most iconic. It's interesting to me how iconic so many things in this movie are, even though I hadn't really thought about what, it. What is his outfit in court? He's just wearing that blazer, and he's got that checked shirt, and it's just like, every time I see him wearing that, I'm like, that's John Denver. That's his fucking outfit. But I think it's probably because my biggest exposure to seeing John Denver as a kid was this movie. I must have seen this movie five, ten times from 77 through 87. Yeah. I don't know. I mean, I always um, think of him in the, the vest. Is that not yeah. John Denver's more iconic outfit? I mean, that's his other iconic outfit. But I'm saying, I think watching that movie this last week made me realize that my 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 Understand, vision of John yeah. Denver is this dopey movie. Yeah. Uh, but John Denver's pretty goddamn dopey. And, and his whole thing slides into this movie perfectly. It really is... <laughs> It really is genius casting. Yeah. And it is right. It's true. And, and Denver and Burns are both icons of their, you know, in their own way. And it really is putting these two fucking icons at the height of their powers, I guess. They're TV stars too. They were both doing these specials like, and that was the big thing. That was where they were reaching the biggest audience. So having this movie be like a TV movie is makes a lot. It's, it's it's a canny move. Yes, right. Well, but I don't know that they were actually thinking that way. You could be right. But uh, but I I will say that it's interesting that for that 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 the sequels have this problem where, for the most part, they're as well cast as oh god, except for these key roles. Especially, oh God, you devil. Right. I mean, how do you go from these icons to fucking Ted Wass? I don't understand. So that's a badly cast movie. <laughs> how are they well, well cast? In, in, in a very crucial role. Although, again, the rest of Oh God, You Devil, like the guy who plays um, uh, his manager. Ron Silver? No, but Ron Silver is great in that movie, too. And it made me long for the old Ron Silver before I either knew or he came out as like a fucking lunatic conservative yeah well ron silver was in silent rage <laughs> there you go we're we gonna talk about silent rage again yeah we're gonna talk about silent rage <laughs> uh eugene roach is the name of the guy who plays ted wass's agent he's this guy who's like a total i think he was on all in the family a lot he was like okay. Archie bunkers friend you know who i'm talking yeah, about i do there's a lot of great actors that did a lot mm-hmm. of tv stuff going on yes yeah and so between Ted Wass and then David Burney in Oh God Book Two, it's like fuck. I wish these two assholes weren't stinking up these movies because they're not. They wouldn't have been good without them, but they would have been a lot better. Because the fact that you have to stare at them for any amount of time in either one of those movies is like fuck this. Yeah, that 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 whole relationship between him and the kid—it's really bad. 
It is bad stuff. The, the, the daughter, you yeah. mean, the, the, the star, the one, Luanne. one named star, Luann. Yeah. yeah. Right. Like mean, David Bernie looks like a ventriloquist dummy and he's like, his <laughs> acting is as wooden as a ventriloquist yeah. dummy. He's got they, it all. If he had been the, if they had had him play the dummy in magic, like, I don't think we would have missed a beat. Like it would have been like, oh yeah, that's Anthony Hopkins and this fucking dummy that looks like David Bernie. Oh, that is David Bernie? Oh, okay. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> ah, well. What are you so do? there you go. I don't know. Anything else? What else you got? You got any more notes about Oh God or the sequels or anything? No, I just don't think I'll ever, I don't think I'm ever going to watch these movies again. I oh, think that's that, sad. I think this might be it. <laughs> this is this is the last time Oh God will be on. I, I I can't imagine another instance where I would see these movies. It's just not going to happen. If they make a remake, which I wouldn't be surprised. Uh, would you go see it? Well, uh, they had a handshake agreement that if they do a remake, it's going to star Whoopi Goldberg. And who so, had a handshake? Uh, I think it was uh, the producer. Uh, my, all my stuff went on. Weintraub. Weintraub was on the View, and he had a handshake agreement with Whoopi Goldberg that she would star as God if they made a remake. But he's mm. dead now. And so I don't know if that's in development, but if it happens, she's supposed to be the George. Well, when Burns was the last time she had a movie that opened? I mean, nobody's looking for Whoopi Goldberg to be in movies anymore. Yeah. I don't know. Yeah. I don't see it happening No, but that still would I mean, make me see this. Right. No, no, I get it. Right. I, I could try to paint scenarios where you might be tempted to watch this again, but they'd be so far-fetched. Yeah, I, I, can't, I can't imagine it. Uh, I mean, I'm not going to write a book about these movies. Um, I'm not going to write a script for the remake of the movie. I, I can't see how it happened, which you, you were right to go, oh, that's kind of sad. It is kind of sad, but, but this is it. Let, let's, let's think about it and, and say goodbye to these movies. Farewell. This is it. I just don't have the time. Not, not for these anymore. Ooh, that got dark. No, I, uh, listen, but I, I'll, I'll say for my part, I'm glad that you came up with this because I never would have thought about why. I never would have watched. I never would have watched Oh God again, and I never would have watched the two sequels, which I even at the time. Like even, t I think that the, the second one came out, what, two years after the first one? It came out in 1980, so three years. Oh, so I was uh, 14 and I was already, I was already too old. Yeah. I was already like, I'm not seeing Oh God book two. No, it, it's, it's appeal reversed, you know, like what usually happens, <laughs> yeah. you know, it's, it's like, it's for even younger people than it was before. Right. And you're right about your theory about sequels really being remakes because Oh God book two really is just kind of a remake. Right. And maybe it's, maybe even though I keep saying David Bernie's a leak wink, leak weak link uh it, it might be equally true that luann like putting luann in instead of a john denver is like crazy like who cares about this little girl like what the fuck she's so weird but it's also a weird oh god book two here's two other reasons that that movie bothers me is one 
God is really fucking annoying. Like, so, like uh, he's almost the opposite of how he is in the first movie. And that, like, now he's just coming down and bothering random people because <laughs> he wants more attention. He wants her to come up with an ad campaign. And here's my problem: How's that campaign yeah, too? Thank that God, campaign is terrible. Thank God, and every and for the first four hundred times that they say it, I keep thinking they're saying thank, thank God. God, right? I was like, that's it. My favorite is it was when they're putting "Thank God" on the side of the building, and did it say grass is good for you on that building right that's yeah. what it said yeah. now that's an ad campaign yeah grass <laughs> is good for you yeah 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 that well see that's the other thing is god is very these movies are very old testament god does say i am a jealous god there should be no gods before me so it totally mm-hmm. makes sense that he's like hey i want more attention and he does that in the first one too he's like yeah I only get a couple lines. It's like, how come I'm not in the paper? You know, you've got to do all these things. Uh, so that totally tracks as far as I'm concerned. Okay. I just, I find him charming. And I, I, maybe it's that he, maybe that in his interplay with John Denver, there are more sort of like attempts at one-liners or attempts at sort of philosophical jokes or or jokes about god's role in the universe and his miracles and his mistakes whereas he doesn't have anyone to bounce off of and yeah to he's got luann to bounce he's just off beating of. up on a kid and he really is superfluous as, as roger ebert says it's like you're doing oh god book two but it seems like an excuse to do this other dumb sitcom movie about this little girl who's trying to get her parents back together right right i mean the- and it's it also it also turns into this whole fucking thing about does God belong in schools? And I'm like, no, he fucking doesn't. Right. And I don't want to watch a movie where the point is like we should have more God in schools or some whatever. the. Fuck yeah, it's a complete about. reaction to all that kind of stuff. And it and it's and it's like, well, shouldn't shouldn't we get a say? And it's like, no, you shouldn't get a say, <laughs> you know, and that still happens today. It's like, what about our, our view? Your view is fucking crazy. You shouldn't <laughs> yeah. be allowed to have movies written by people who are smart. You know, you, you don't have that kind of thing. It's I don't know what I'm trying to say, but I do know what I'm trying to say. Well, I think you're trying to say that people who believe in Jew lasers don't belong in Congress. Yes, I think I am, and and uh, it's a controversial opinion, but yeah, we're making it. Yeah, maybe, maybe we do need this movie again. Well, Scott. Yes, we did it. Uh, I well, I yeah, mean, it's still I, two and a half hours, so we didn't. But we we took a little break, and uh, I I'm gonna get this fucker under two because we also had like a John Ashton break that we can't we. <laughs> <laughs> it's a take back out. There's some stuff that's not going to make it into well, the That was the best part of the thing. The, I know. Well, that story is, that's gold. All right, man. All right. Uh, well, I'm sorry I dragged us into this, and uh, but I'm no, not. No, no. I'm not sorry. I, I think it was a great, I had a great time watching the six movies that I watched. Yeah. Well, five plus Dogma, which was not great no. to watch. Fuck Kevin Smith. You did that one to uh, yourself. I did. Yeah. I did. I, put, I, I did it to myself. Yeah. All right. Uh, great. Uh, goodbye, everybody. Goodbye. We'll talk, Thanks for... We'll talk to you again soon. Yeah. All right. <laughs>